Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefers Initiative. This is the Herpeticulture Podcast, which is part of the Herpeticulture Network. Enjoy the show. Hitting record. We are recording. We are recording. We are here. Welcome. This is episode 130 of the Herpeticulture Podcast. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Jacob Ratz with Longleaf Reptilia. Oh, oh, a new brand. New, new brand drop. Yeah, 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 yeah. We have Especially to redo a new new intro for the show now. Next time. Yeah. When you're, maybe we can do that Monday when you're not sick anymore. Yeah, I might still be a little st- st- and a little sniffly, but uh, we can make it happen. I can try and I can try and make it sound mostly normal. Cool. It'll be all good. Well, 130 episodes deep. Uh, this show is brought to you by Steve Snakeshuary and his Venom Hot Sauce. Please be sure to check those out. If you're buying his hot sauce, you're helping Steve out. Uh, he does public outreach, education, teaches kids, teaches adults, rescues, uh, various snakes and other herps. Um, he has a collection that he uses for said outreach. So if you're buying the hot sauce, you're helping him directly. Um, he's defending the faith in the ancient lands of Louisiana. So He's doing the Lord's work. That's right. Uh, but... Tonight, I'm uh, very excited to have Mr. Roy Arthur Blodgett joining us from Wellspring Herpeticulture. What's happening, bang, man? Bang, bang. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for having me on, guys. I'm kind of stoked to be here. Do you uh, Just, do you uh, do you always include the the middle name or no? I usually do. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I like my middle name, name just because. I don't know, I like the memes. Roy Arthur was a red bear, and I just kind of like that. So I just go with it. <laughs> um, yeah, so like I said, very excited to have you on. Uh, if anybody checked out one of the recent issues of Herpeticulture Magazine, Roy did an awesome article on tricolor hogs. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit, but it's just a sort of a brief intro. I mean, we... we like to get people's backstories, but everyone's backstory is pretty much the same. So we just sort of dive right into the the nitty gritty of of the the show. So yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, I've been keeping herps for a long time. Um, you know, I was, same as same as all of us, just a kid obsessed with going over and turning over logs and stuff in the backyard, pretty much as long as I can remember and. Um, my dad kept some herps and inverts when I was a kid and just kind of encouraged me to do the same. And so, yeah, pretty much from as long back as I could remember up until the point when I was about 18, I kept herps and then I took about 10 years off, um, from keeping them and mostly did a lot of field herping through those days and other naturalist stuff, wildlife tracking, that kind of stuff. And, um, and then I guess, uh, I think it was 2018, um, kind of end of that year, I ended up picking up a snake that I had hatched as a teenager, um, this big oh, no adult male, uh, Spilody sulfurious. And that's kind of my, that's kind of the species I'm most passionate about. Those guys are really, really what I love to keep. And, um, 
so that kind of got me back into it. And so the last few years I've kind of expanded from there. And right now I've got, let's see, 2.2 uh, Spilotti sulfurius, which is the Amazon puffing snake. And then I've got a pair of the tricolor hogs and a bunch of monkey lizards, the polycrust marmoratus and Texas alligator lizards that I just got and I'm raising up. So got a, a good amount of diversity here and just a few species, but I really like try to focus on like really specific care and I keep everything kind of like biotope style setups. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I enjoy doing. Nice, man. Yeah. So it's uh like you're kind of almost, I call it sort of the, the European model, you know, where they have smaller collections, but they put so much more effort into the, you know, those handful of animals they're keeping rather than right. sort of the American model, which is like as much in as small amount of space as possible. Yeah. Um, it is you can small space as small as you can. What? P- pack as many as you can in a small space. Oh as you can. yeah, you you cut out. So. Um. Yeah. Well, sorry. Sheesh. Yeah, I totally, I totally relate to the kind of more European style, and you know, I've done, I've done it all kinds of different ways. When I was a teenager, I think that I, I definitely got in over my head and had way more than I needed to have yeah. and um you know i was still keeping stuff in, in kind of more naturalistic style setups at that time but um but i had you know I was, I was a teenager so i didn't really have much money to work with you know all the funding i had was just from breeding breeding herps and so um as a result you know i couldn't really go out all out in the way that i i've gone to now and um yeah, coming back, I think that I was really just aware of that going into it. I was like, I was like, okay, I'm going to go slow. I don't want to get in over my head. I'm, you know, I don't want to cut any corners with with what I'm doing. And, um, yeah, it's just for me. I think also coming from like a, you know, like an ecology background, a naturalist background. I'm what I'm really interested in is like behavior and and how species interact with their environments. And so mm-hmm. I really like to keep them in setups that can encourage natural behaviors as much as possible. And it's just like, it's so cool again to see those things happen, you know, and even in a captive setting and remember like, Oh yeah, there's a, it's a wild animal, you know, that comes from somewhere. Right. I love that. So it seems definitely more in line with that European model. Yeah. That's funny. Cause they're yeah, like my yeah. first introduction to you and what you do was like in our group chat, we were talking about your, your Spilotti setup that, we can see in your background but the people listening can't um yeah and like there we had a, a conversation about the whole thing and just how impressive the the thing is i mean how big is that that setup it's um so it's eight feet uh, long by three feet deep by six feet tall and um it's it's big it's as big as i could fit in this room <laughs> yeah thanks a monster <laughs> that's yeah. a big enclosure man like that people yeah would consider the shop you know like that's that's big impressive yeah yeah i could lay down in it you know and and did when i was building it you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i bet and i'd take them there yeah it's crazy you know it's funny it's like now that it's all set up it's like i still look at it sometimes i'm like man i wish i could i wish i could have gone a little bit bigger than that just because the 
the male the male that goes in there he's almost he's pushing 11 feet long he's holy yeah so he's he's wow he he might be the biggest the biggest spilotes in captivity right now I, i don't know of any that are bigger he's he's a tank so dude that's a monster it's awesome, it eating, eating rabbits no yeah <laughs> small children <laughs> medium rats pretty much and like weak old quail you know i mean he could he could eat something bigger he could eat a large rat no problem but i yeah. think that um they tend to do better with like a few smaller prey items in my experience um, yeah smaller smaller prey more often versus the yeah. bigger less frequent yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that in the wild they're probably i think they do a lot of nest raiding yeah they're yeah. just the way, they, the way they hunt and the way they eat is kind of crazy they just like grab it and swallow it they don't really kill it first and it's like that strategy does not make sense if you're taking down like large <laughs> yeah no and i've been kind of trying to go the same route with some of the pituofas because you know some of them are called you know some of them are called gopher snakes and go they're called gopher snakes because they raid gopher you know burrows yeah and eat just like go ham on all the babies you know so sometimes you know i i'll throw them like a couple you know three four five fuzzies and just watch them just blah yeah yeah pituofas are awesome we have the wild pacific gopher snake here i see them a lot in our in our yard here i actually watched one get a gopher burrow it was pretty sweet it, like oh, it, i've been handling it and then i i put it down and it started cruising and it caught like a scent trail or something and then it stopped and it actually like periscoped for a minute and kind of like was just tongue flicking and like caught the trail again and then beelined for this gopher burrow and it started like digging it up like using its head to like kick dirt out of this hole and it was really no cool way. i was like yeah you do your work, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you do you buddy <laughs> yeah i've got i got a video of it. i can send it to you it's pretty cool yeah definitely have to well, we were talking before we were recording about how like spilotes sort of fill the same sort of niches as true ganyasoma do you know in asia like very similar as far as body structure. I think Ganya Summer are the same way because I've I've watching my Jance and I eat, they don't they don't constrict or nothing either. It's like literally grab it and eat it as fast as possible. Oh, yeah. Um, so Yeah, it, it's it's <laughs> trippy because the sulfurious they're 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 classified as opistoglyphs, you know, they've got venom in there, they've got the whole rear fang thing going on, but <laughs> I mean, even even the times when I've fed them like live prey, they don't take time to envenomate it. In my experience, it pretty much <laughs> down the hatch. So, yeah, they just kind of do it as they chew, as they chew through them. Yeah, I mean, it's and they eat so fast. I mean, it's like seconds. You know, they'll they'll like grab a prey item and it's down. Yeah, it's see, so that makes you that's got to wonder if like they're if venom if the venom that they have is more used in like breaking down their food during digestion or something like that you know like say yeah. they do chew it into their food and it might help break it down in their stomachs or something yeah i'd love to see stuff like that studied more you know it's like for the longest time they were considered you know totally harmless not you know not even rear fanged and it was actually during that period of time when I was away from the hobby when I came back and I was like, oh, these are now, well, first of all, they're now Spilotes. They used to be classified as Seustes. 
which mm-hmm. wasn't really that surprising. I remember, you know, back back then, some friends and I, you know, that were keeping keeping them and talking about it were always kind of like, maybe these are actually spilotes. You know, they they've got similar behaviors with the mm-hmm. throat puffing, really similar body structure. But um, but the other thing was like, oh, now they're venomous. That's cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> gotta treat them a little differently. Yeah, right. Have you kept like the notice? What's that? Do I keep the notice? Uh, yeah. Are those, have you ever, do you plan on? Because it seems like a lot of people that keep Spilotes, Pacillanotis are also, they're, it's almost like a, like an emerald chondro thing. Like if you're keeping chondros, most guys have at least a, you know, caninus or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I'd like to someday. I, I don't right now. I have kept um, Pacillanotis in the back in the past when I was a teenager, I had them and, um, I have like a northern locality, like um, not the colorful ones from Costa Rica, but they mm-hmm. were more kind of a black and yellow or kind of like a almost a chocolate brown and yellow. And yeah. um, they're probably a totally different species, honestly. They just like mm-hmm. the, all these snakes needed so much more, you know, work on the taxonomy and, and classification of them because they're, I think that there's probably a lot more um, diversity in that, in those genre than people realize, but but um, yeah, I love those snakes. I just, I, I would like to get back into them. It's just a matter of like finding the time and space, you know, it's like mm-hmm. right now I've got my little room set up and I've kind of built them out to the max that I, that I want to do in them. And, um, but that said, I'm hoping to probably move and maybe build my own small little like her facility, you know, at some point in the future. And maybe those are like high on the list of species that I don't want to work with. How frustrating is it to to want to get into certain like see stuff you really want to get into, but because you've limited yourself space wise because you're you know you're you're doing that sort of European model of things like yeah does it ever get really frustrating because you see stuff that you really want to get into or stuff you kept in the past and want to get back into? Uh, there's I mean there's a little bit of that, but honestly most of the time I think it's kind of like it's like frustration, but it's also mixed with like a little bit of relief. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, you know, I, no, I've, I've uh, made my bed, now I got to lay in it, you know, and, and um, no more space. So it's kind of easy when you don't give yourself the choice. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, that's kind of honestly kind of how I designed it. Cause it's mm-hmm. like, I mean, it's y'all, everyone knows, you know, if we all keep herps, we all know that it's like, it's really exciting to get new stuff and get it, get it all set up and learn about new behaviors and, all that stuff. So yeah. I, I try to, I try to limit it, but I also think about it too. It's like, well, you know, I'm in this for the long, the long haul and, you know, I'll probably have opportunities to work with species down the line that I don't need to be in a rush about it right now. So there's definitely like, there's a lot of stuff that like I've got my eye on that I'm like, okay, well, someday. <laughs> but, uh, you still check morph market and all that stuff every day. Oh, you know? oh yeah. You just, you, just know, you just know you got to hold off for a while. Yeah. <laughs> You got to know your options, though. You got to know what's there. You know who who am I gonna hit up you're once just, I'm ready? You know? Exactly. You're opening yourself up for trouble, though, because like I'm on a hardcore corn snake kick right now, and I went on the VMS site today, and they have so many awesome corns for sale. Oh, I was no. like, this was such a bad idea. Oh, no. Yeah, dude. Slippery slope. I've it's got I've got a I've got a few more things that like i'm getting a bunch of stuff this month and then some more stuff in september and then after that there'll be like one or two more things that i want to get and i'm done 
I'm not, I'm not even going to be looking at Morph Market and uh-huh. Fauna and none of them stuff. Nah, I'm not buying more shit. I don't need more shit. And yeah, you know, I'm going to stop myself. <laughs> I, it's, it's real. I, I mean, yeah, I also kind of like, like I've got some like mixed species displays too. So I can kind of, I kind of blur the boundaries a little bit there. Like again, the Spilotes set up, I've actually got some lizards in there with the Spilotes that um, they're, they're in there functionally to help control the insect population. Cause I've got so many right. in there now that like, there's not something in there to keep them in check. Like the isopods are just crazy. So um, I've actually got a, like a uranoscodon superciliosis. They're like the mop head iguanas. I got one of those mm-hmm. in there. And that's a really trippy lizard. And then I've got a pair of uh, the turnip tailed geckos, the Becodactylus rapicata. It's bedtime. Oh. <laughs> I just saw the lights off there. I was like, hey. <laughs> Yeah, it's gonna slowly get darker, but I've got the overhead lights on. So anyway, um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's such a tricky thing, you know. I've got a few more enclosures that I'm actually building right now. They're like the last, the last enclosures to finish out this room. So I have a I have a small tropical room and I have a small temperate room um, set up in my basement, and. Um, yeah, I've got like a few vacant enclosures that are kind of like I've got. A, some species in mind for these and i'm just kind of waiting because it's a lot of the stuff i really want to work with it's just it's just not easy to get it you know and so i gotta be mm-hmm. patient by my time and it's fun though because then i can do lots of research and like build out the habitat so it's like fully dialed before the even mm-hmm. it's time to get yeah up. especially with stuff like like spilotes and whatnot you know those plants really need to be rooted and and established before you release something like that on them because they're going to get destroyed in a, you know, yeah, in a day. Um, there was definitely some plant mortality in the first week um, that they were in there. <laughs> but, but honestly, like I've been kind of shocked because there's, there's a lot of plants in there and they're still doing pretty good. Like that's that's good, almost, almost a year now that that setup's been up and running. Cool. Now, yeah, all the, and, are all the plants in there alive? Yeah, so they're all live and they're all actually native to Suriname, which is where the snakes came from. Oh, that's cool. Wow. So, that's yeah. even that's awesome, dude. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually totally geeked out and I was like, all right, I'm just gonna like figure out what kind of plants I can find that are actually from where they're from. And and I've honestly I've done that for all the all the species I have. So like the monkey lizard, same thing, which it's easy because they come from the same region as the spilotes, so I can just use a lot of the same plants, but mm-hmm. Um, I think in some ways for me, like the geeking out and kind of researching and studying up on the herps and where they come from is, is as much fun almost as keeping them for me and kind of scratching, right. you know, in some ways. So I like doing that. For sure, man. Well, then the Spilotes to me, you know, in relation to the Ganyasoma, that's, that's also, that's a species that I, I firmly believe, you know, Ganyasoma, at least for me, mm-hmm. um, like that's a that's a species that you can keep them in racks like you know v70s or whatever maybe not monster individuals you know obviously mm-hmm. big ones that's that's going to be a tight tight fit totally, but that's yeah. a species that you if you give them the space they're going to appreciate it you know they're going to use it <clears throat> and like i'm i'm kind of of the opinion that i like with the jansen in particular i definitely want to give them more than they need space wise like that mm-hmm. little extra bit they're not going to it's not going to hurt 
Totally. I mean, do you find that to be the case with with Spilotes? Do you see, have you kept them in a more simple sort of basic rack style sort of deal and then switched them over to that? And did you notice any major differences as far as how, how well they acclimated and did? Yeah, yeah. So definitely, I've definitely done it a few different ways. I mean, usually, so so the big male um, that I have is the one that I hatched when I was a teenager. He so he's captive born, um, mm-hmm. and when he came in, he went right into um, like a six foot tall by four foot wide by two foot deep setup, and it had like live plants and stuff in it too, but it wasn't nearly as big as this. It was a third the size. Still a big setup, but. Yeah. Um, but, um, and he did, he did fine in there. And then, um, I got the two females, um, within a few months of each other, um, but they were both wild caught imports. And so I had to go through the whole quarantine process with them. And I had them in, um, like big modified, um, plastic totes, you know, like, um, not quite this, the size of the Christmas tree totes, but big ones, you know, yeah, like a one ten. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, big, yeah. Me and Jake use those for all kinds of stuff. Yeah, they're, I mean, for quarantine, oh, yeah. for like grow outs, they're great, you know, especially with like the stuff that, you know, that Brahms makes to do yeah. like the doors and I love all that stuff. And so yeah. I totally use that stuff for grow outs and for um for quarantine. And, you know, initially, actually, those the females, they did great in those setups. They were like slamming food, drop fed, um, you know, did I went through the whole parasite treatment process with them in there and then um i transitioned them in um in with the male like sequentially not not at the same time and they didn't do as well initially they were definitely you know more more freaked out and kind of like they didn't they they would still feed but just not as consistently mm-hmm. and um and they definitely didn't didn't want to tong feed um but what's been interesting is that since they've been moved into this setup um you know which again it's it's three times the size of that last naturalistic setup. Um, they're now doing great and like really eating well. The female, one of the females is now like slamming food off the of tongs. No problem. She's growing way fast now. And then the other female um, is now like accepting food really regularly, but not yet on tongs. She, she just likes to drop feed. So um, I think that there's something, there's like a balance there, you know, where it's like, I think that um, in some ways, like a big tote, you know, especially if they're opaque, they, they almost function like one big giant hide, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's mm-hmm. like sensory deprivation, I think. And it kind of, I think that that sensory deprivation, especially in the acclimation process is super helpful for snakes that are stressed out coming in from, you know, being in the wild and suddenly they're in, you know, Northern California. Um, yeah. In the confines of a, of a box. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then you know, into this naturalistic thing, and it's like almost like that, that naturalistic setup actually wasn't quite big enough for them to feel like, like fully secure. It, it was interesting. So once they got into this one, though, you know, there's, there's, I think that there's like another foot of depth. That's a big factor, I think. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, even when I'm approaching the the enclosure, they know that they've got another foot that they can kind of go back and get away from me if they want. Um, but they've also become way more relaxed in that setup too. You know, like I'll come down here and pretty much every day, all three snakes are out basking. They've got like their routine, you know, and they're way yeah. out stretching branches, using the space. And, 
and that's just awesome to see you know like it's it's um it would be a bummer you know if they were just constantly in these cork rounds in the branches or something but they're usually out and visible and cruising and and so i think that they, they yeah that's awesome benefit from the space yeah, and I, uh, you know, the biggest difference between, you know, what you have there and like when you have the two and the four foot, you know, like that four foot quite big enough for two to where they could get away from each other kind of deal, you know, Ooh. they were always more packed together, but in this larger set of space to be able to get away from each other when they need to and actually feel like truly away from them. Yeah. You know, and because that's 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 important when you're cohabiting animals, giving each one the opportunity to you know go its own way per se. Yeah, I to I totally agree with that. And actually, when I was when I was so when I was designing the setup, um, I actually made it so that they like I had it built in such that they had three different basking areas in the enclosure, so that all three snakes can go and bask independently if they want. And it's really cool because right. sometimes they do like they do avoid each other sometimes and are like you know it's like they're perfectly spaced like on the three bathroom platform, <laughs> you know and they're like yeah thing and other times they're like coiled up in the same hide together you know and and chummy as can be and um it's funny because i think spilotes do pretty well um cohabbing like they don't they're not cannibalistic you know at least as far as i've seen um and they're, they're pretty good at like communicating boundaries to each other. You know, if they don't want to be messed with, they'll kind of like, you know, do that they'll thing where they'll jerk and the twitch yeah. on the twitch and, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's cool that it's, I think that that's a really important factor to consider when cohabbing is like, okay, do they have enough space to actually get away from each other? Are there enough hides for them to all be hiding independently enough basking sites for them to bask independently? If, if you can, if you can make that happen, it's, I think it's a good way to go. Certainly yeah, and idea. a lot of that too is also making sure you're using, you know, all the all the as much space in that that setup as possible. You know, instead yeah. of just hides on top, hides on bottom, like figuring out ways to use the you know the, the empty space in between, and you know, totally. really getting the most out of that square footage. Yeah, totally. And they they can use like every square inch of that the way I've, the way I got it set up with the branches and. It's got like a mm. like a fake rock background with ledges and stuff that they use, and but yeah, that was a that was kind of a learning curve for me, I think, too, with with just designing out larger setups is like actually just having enough um, like branches and stuff in there to fill out that volume and actually mm -hmm. make it useful. Because I think that sometimes people are like, oh, like I just you know I got a new setup and they got you know they bump up their snake into a three foot high setup, but then they don't have any branches or anything for it to use that vertical space. Right. You know, right. The one foot setup or whatever. And it's like, well, actually you gotta, you gotta give them opportunities to use it. And that's, so that's this whole, the whole other learning curve. Yeah. There's an entire extra dimension to it. Yeah, totally. Right. So for, for filling up your enclosure, like say with like branches and stuff, obviously you bought live plants to plant in there, but for like branches and stuff, were they things that you bought and, or more found was the stuff that you found and then treated for, you know, parasites and whatnot? Yeah. Um, I'm curious about that too. Cause I tried some, I tried some crepe myrtle branches at one point with some chondros yeah. and those got moldy real quick. Yeah. Blue fuzz. Yeah. I mean, 
that's a that's a trick too is like the ventilation and a lot of setups too i think i think a lot of like the especially like the modern pvc setups a lot of them don't really have super functional ventilation i've noticed it's just like it gets pretty stagnant yeah because there needs to be like a differential right there needs to be like something drawing in cool air from the bottom and like leaving out the top and often the vents are all just like you know one set of vents around the top which you know it's not actually creating airflow Mm-hmm. And so the way these setups are, they have, they have like a differential in the ventilation, which really helps with that. It keeps the airflow moving. And I also have, um, computer fans that go off a few times a day to keep the airflow moving. Oh, okay. But, yeah. That was my next question. Was, yeah. Was, but but yeah, but I, but I foraged all the branches. I'm, I'm lucky cause I, I live up on, um, on a big property, like a, like a 300 acre property and there's, um, endless manzanita for me to pick from. Oh, nice all just like fire hazard anyway and so i go through <laughs> and, I it, and that's part of like the work that i do on the land for work trade is thinning and and so i'll thin out branches i'm like oh that's a nice branch i'll take that one home and um yeah, and that's yeah. also a super rot resistant wood yeah. thankfully it's really hard and really rot resistant so that's worked pretty well but i do notice that like with softer woods um just with like the whole bioactivity thing like they'll just like rot <laughs> yeah like, especially if there's anything in contact with the soil it just like this the soil just eats the eats the wood really quickly it's surprisingly quickly um with some of those woods but manzanita is mm-hmm. my experience has been the best of what i've tried and how do you have because i've like the idea of using computer fans for for you know just air circulation even if it's only a little bit is is an yeah. idea I've, I've always really liked but the thing is, is finding a way to mount them to where a the animals can't come in contact with it, but also a way to where you don't have to worry about that being a, a potential area for them to be able to worm their way out of you know that. So how do you have that set up? So I have them. So I, they're on the way these setups are. They have kind of like a hood um, compartment, and then there's like a screen top where I have all my lights mounted on those screen those screen cutouts. Um, cause I, I wanted to do external lighting as much as I can. I've had issues in the past with internal lighting sometimes like lizards wedging themselves in behind a T5 and frying and stuff like that. And so I just wanted to avoid that. <laughs> and it's also, I like it just cause it's cleaner, um, you know, in terms of the way it looks. And so have it like that, but I just have them mounted on the, um, right on the screen and they're plugged into a USB. And I usually have, um, like one fan will be drawing air in and one will be pulling air out to create okay. kind of like a, t- yeah. a tunnel of, of, uh, ventilation there. And, um, that, that works totally fine so far. I mean, I think that in a lot of ways there's enough passive ventilation in these setups to probably not need that, but, um, I think it's, I think it's it helpful. Hurt. Mm-hmm. You can't hurt. It's like, it's especially because I don't have humidity issues yeah. down here. Um, if, I, if I was worried about, you know, retaining more humidity, I'd probably try and do something different. But um, this room is like, like 70, 80% humidity most of the year. No problem without even really doing much to it. So that works well. Good deal, man. Yeah. yeah. I'm planning to move my Jance and I into a it's more or less square footage wise like cubic feet i guess it's the same mm-hmm. um, but it's it's definitely taller it's a little deeper and i'm i'm planning to i want to get them on uv cool. um something like i know with those especially ventilation is a big key 
Like they don't do well with stagnant, stagnant mm-hmm. substrate, stagnant air. Um, and so I'm, I'm, that was one thing I'm really curious about is like UV has been sort of a big, big conversation lately. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you offer the, your stuff, be it the Spilodes or Xenodon or mm-hmm. any of that? Do you give them all UV? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. So I give everything UV. Um, I use mostly Arcadia stuff. Um, and you know, the, the different, you know, tubes and stuff that I buy for them depends on, on the setup and what species I'm providing it for. But the, the monkey lizards and the Spilodes, I give, um, 6% UVB, um, tubes and, um, and yeah, I, I, UVB is such a complex thing because I think it's something like, uh, you know, the the evidence is there that, you know, it's like it's definitely beneficial for a lot of species and, 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 and necessary for a lot of species, especially lizards and Chileans and stuff, obviously. And um, with the Spilodes, you know, I was like, okay, these are, these are you know, diurnal snakes. They live mm-hmm. up in the trees in the wild as far as we know, like there's so little information that you can even find in terms of natural history accounts on these snakes that like, I'm just like gleaning any little thing I can, you know? And I think I found one that was like one paper that mentioned they were often seen like basking in on the forest floor and like, you know, little openings of light. Yeah. And I was like, okay, they're basking, like they're getting UV. <laughs> like I'm just going to put it in there. <laughs> and, um, um, but you know, at the same time, I think that one thing to be really aware of with UV is just making sure that you have a gradient with it, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that that's something that is, it's, it's like anything though, you know, you always want a gradient. That's kind of what herpetoculture is. It's just like creating gradients and letting the animals take care of themselves in a lot of ways. And, um, UV is another one of those things. It's just another gradient. And the hard part with that is that it's a gradient. You can't see or feel as easily as like a humidity gradient or a heat gradient. Yeah. You gotta like figure out other ways. And um, I recently, last year, I invested in a solar meter so I can actually measure like the UVI at different branch heights and stuff like that and make sure that, like, okay, I'm not frying them, <laughs> but they mm-hmm. can still feed and they can still avoid it if they need to. So, um, but yeah, that's pretty much everything I've got has it right now. And, um, I haven't had any issues with like over provision as far as I can tell of UV so far, but like, that's honestly something I th- I'm, I'm like keeping more of an eye on yeah. uh, for that than anything, just cause I know that that's, that's totally possible to do. You know, it's, it's like, yeah. And I, I like to think that, okay, the animals know what they need and they'll move out of it if they are getting too much, you know? And I think that there's a lot of species that that's true. They, they do right. kind of, they can tell and they can self-regulate. But then with other species, I'm like, maybe the species is just like really heliophilic, you know, and really loves mm-hmm. light and doesn't really care if it's frying. <laughs> it just wants to. Yeah. Be I mean, you, I mean, you, if the, and you have to think of the animals that lay on top of, you know, hot rocks and will wrap themselves around a, a bulb, you know, they will burn themselves. horribly. Yeah. Like you're saying, having bulbs inside their ears. I've seen wrapped around this that burned all kinds, you know. So obviously not uncommon that snakes are don't exactly think of those things all the time. Um, yeah, but well, it's yeah. I mean, the UV thing is is talked about a lot, especially lately, and like I'm all for it. But at the same time, I think there should also be a caveat of 
a like what species are you planning on giving it to i was actually having this conversation with with jen at black box uh last night um like chondros david mm-hmm. david brahms gives gives his chondros uv but he only mm-hmm. gives them four hours a day of uv because that's not an animal that's gonna get away from that and go hide somewhere like they're always right. out yeah for something like you know the scrubs jance and i spilotes anything like that where they have the options to actually get away from it as as much as possible be it a hide or whatever like mm-hmm. maybe expose them for you know do the 12 hour cycle or whatever adjust yeah. it as as the seasons change but like but the UV, you're also going to give lizards and stuff, especially desert dwellers or anything like that, is going to be wildly different from what I would be given pretty much any snake, honestly. Totally. Uh, and so I think like it, there needs to be some sort of of sort of catch to where it's like, yeah, you should be using UV, but you need to also think about what species you're doing and how much you're giving it because <clears throat> I can totally see people saying, oh, well, I'm giving them UV, and they're like, the, the, you know, the animal gets UV, and then they can't get away from it it's like it's still radiation yeah totally yeah, and i i think i think a lot of that is you know how setups um because like you know i think you could you might be able to get away way longer if you set like yours they can they can wow in it and hide away when they want to. But a lot, you know, we talk about simplistic setups nowadays and mm-hmm. how most people keep a lot mm-hmm. of simplistic setups. And normally, like a lot of times, if they give them UVB, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, they think they're doing them good. But in that simplistic setup, I'll have a hide box, go hide away from it. You know, they don't have other options to get away because a lot of people do some type of perching, maybe water dish, hide box, call it a day you know and teach their own that's fine but if you give them that uvb with that they don't have the options to get away from it as they would in an enclosure which is yours you know and yeah yeah i mean i think like it's it's like gradient it's all about gradients you know really right it's hard because you know i think a lot of people that's kind of one of the downfalls of like you know the being in the age of like care sheet herpetoculture you know where it's like people are just like, okay, what, what are the things I need? I'm just going to do it, but they don't actually necessarily seek the reasons why they're doing the things that they're doing a lot of the time, which is right. We're all guilty yeah. of that on some level. And I think that it's really helpful. Like it's, it's actually more rewarding too, to like actually learn about the reasons why you're doing what you're doing with your herbs, you know, and like, why does it need UVB and like, you know, what, you know, what kind of, bull does it need and all that kind of stuff. I think it's actually pretty rewarding to learn about that stuff, but it definitely takes a lot more work and a lot more like, yeah, there's more effort and more research. And it's also, it's hard too, because I mean, even, even like different brands, you know, of they create different products and stuff. Some, some of the, you know, companies that are producing UVB bulbs can actually produce bulbs that are like super dangerous for animals and like have like a Mm. uvi of like of like 40 or something like that Ooh. i saw something recently someone posted a bulb in a group and they were like i just put i just plugged in my brand new bulb and it's got a the it's got a reading of 40 on my solar meter and i'm like that thing get that thing away from your enclosure yeah now. i'm kidding that's crazy and so there's you there, it Jeez. really helps to have like a tool like a solar meter just to like know know some idea of what's going on in there provided that's not a perfect tool either but it's it's better than nothing and um well it's a little and, trickier too like it goes it goes a little further because you have the distance between the bulb and you know the spot that the animal would be basking in right 
so you have that, but then you also have the added factor of like which bulb should you be going exactly. with, you know? So it is exactly. like that's that's sort of my biggest problem with the the conversation of, of UV right now is like it gets painted with a very broad brush, totally. and I think it's much more nuanced than than what it's being told to be. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it really, I mean, that's honestly, I think that like what you just said is also true of so many different issues in, in herpetoculture and just in, honestly, unless like the world in general is like, you know, people don't want the nuanced story a lot of the time. They want like, let's let's flatten this down into two, two dimensions and, you know. Yeah, the, the small packaged ready to go version. Yeah, but like these are like often pretty complex yeah. things that, and it's it's um it's important to understand the nuances of it as much as you can, you know. And and it's it's like I'm always learning more, you know, with with this stuff. It's like I, you know, I think like the the whole infrared thing for me is a big one where it's like, um, you know, before I was providing the Spilotes with um radiant heat panels, and you know, when I got back or way back when I was a teenager, I was like radiant heat panels are the best thing. That's like what everyone was saying. It's like, that's the best thing you can provide your, your animal for heat, you mm -hmm. know? And so when I got back into the hobby, you know, get the heat panels set up and everything and they're great. You know, they were keeping the stable, you know, 95 basking spot or whatever. It was I wanted. doing its job. It was doing its job. Right. But, um, but then down the road, like I noticed that the snakes would spend a lot of time under those heat panels which was one thing I noticed, which is like, that just didn't, that seemed contrary to what I see with snakes in the wild. And I'm actually like observing them is that they're not, they're not usually just like sitting in the sun, you know, for hours at a time. Um, sometimes they are, you know, but, but a lot of times they're not. And especially more active species are not doing that usually. And, and then one of the females um, became gravid and I was actually kind of like, uh, damn, I didn't really want you to be gravid this year because it was actually <laughs> the first year since I got her back and or got her and um, I was trying to just grow her up, you know, and like get her nice and healthy, put on some weight, you know, after coming in pretty skinny from being imported. And um, then she starts cycling and I'm like, oh, damn, like, okay, here we go. And, and so she drops an infertile clutch and it ended up being this huge ordeal because she didn't pass like two the last two eggs and mm. and so and though it was even worse because when she actually laid i was like out of town so my my partner is like sending me videos she's like oh yeah she just laid and and um you know my poor partner catherine is just like what do i do you know i'm like nothing just leave the lake the eggs those are infertile like don't have to worry about her but then i'm thinking in the back of my mind like oh god like I got to get back and check on her because she, because she might have eggs still in there, you know, yeah. and Jason hood also, I, I was messaging him and, you know, he's like the, he's got the most experience with sulfurious at this point. And he was like, Make yeah, sure he's got those pretty well there. nailed down. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, as soon as I get back, I take, I take her out. I'm checking on her and like, I'm like, oh, crap, I can feel eggs. I can feel at least two eggs. So this whole thing went down. We ended up aspirating an egg and removing it. That went fine. But then there's this last egg and I was like, okay, I'm going to give her some time. And, um, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of funny. I was just like sitting there with this, like with this snake. And I was like, you know, I wonder like if you, if, how you do, if I just took you outside and just like gave you some exercise. And mm -hmm. gave you some so I just picked her up, 
I took her outside and put her in my front yard. It was like a beautiful sunny day. And she just like immediately just like, just like chilled out and just started basking right in the sun and basked for like 30 minutes, did not move at all. Um, and then she started kind of moving around a little bit and I picked her up and I put her back in and I checked on her 20 minutes later and she had passed that egg after, hmm. after being wow. in the sun. And I was kind of like, oh, okay. So what's going on here? Like, what is different, you know, about like, I mean, obviously there are differences about the radiation that your animal is getting from the sun versus our yeah. bulbs. Like we're never going to be able to replicate that. But I'm like, okay, what is it? What's, what's inadequate, you know? Cause um, yeah, cause she could be basking under that heat panel, you know, and it's not giving her that same thing. And so I started doing more research into infrared and, um, <clears throat> and basically found that, yeah, like, like heat panels for a lot of species, like, especially more like thermoconform thermoconforming species that don't bask quite as actively are, are good, you know, cause they do provide a nice broad area of heat, but, um, the actual wavelength that's produced by things like heat panels or ceramic heat emitters, um, it's a much longer wavelength and it actually doesn't penetrate into the, the like tissue of the animal as deeply as, as sunlight does, or as like, hmm. Um, light from like a infrared from a halogen bulb does. And so, you know, I, that totally kind of blew my mind because in my mind, I'm thinking like infrared's heat, heat is heat, you know, right. that's, it's like, that's, that's all it is. Right. You just got to make sure they have the heat. And so I kind of went down this rabbit hole and I'm like, okay, well, what's the best thing that provides, you know, the other wavelengths. So, and so they kind of generally break it down into like infrared a infrared B infrared C and, um, Infrared A, infrared B is kind of what you want for those active basking species. Um, and they actually produce infrared C as a byproduct by heating objects in the enclosure. So it's like if you have a, a halogen bulb that produces lots of infrared A, you know, over a basking rock or over a basking branch, it's going to heat up that branch or that rock. And then that rock's going to give off that heat. Yeah that's the same thing that the rock that the, the heat that that rock's giving off is the same as a heat panel or a ceramic heat emitter. Um, and so you kind of get both in one. And so I, I ended up modifying the enclosures. I had to like cut out the top of these PVC enclosures and like install a screen so I could do flights on the outside. And I put in um, halogen basking bulbs and turned them on. And like within five minutes of turning them on, all three snakes were out basking and were like, just like chilling under this heat, basking in a way I'd never seen them do before. And I was like, okay, there's something about this. There's something to this. And so- Now between the A, B and C, is that just a matter of like wavelength? Exactly, yeah. So like, I don't know, remember the actual number range, but essentially the A, I think that the A and B are a shorter wavelength that penetrate more deeply. Um, into the, into the muscle tissue essentially. And it's like, it's like why people go in like infrared saunas and stuff like that is because mm -hmm. it actually heats your body differently. Um, which I didn't know anything about all this stuff until I started researching it. And I was like, Oh, this actually makes a ton of sense. Cause like, it does feel totally different, you know, standing in the sun, right. Than it does standing in front of like a radiator or your you oven. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Where you're like, it, it heats your body really differently. And, um, and so I think that, yeah, for some species that can really make a difference in their, in their well-being. And, 
And since then, she's laid two clutches. Um, the following year, she laid another infertile clutch. And then this year, just just um, on the 21st of June, she laid, laid the first fertile clutch um, that I've gotten from them. And no issues whatsoever. And I can't, obviously, that's totally anecdotal. I can't say it's like it's because now, you know, right. she's got allergens. But I think that, <laughs> you know, just like seeing how stark that contrast was with watching her out in the front yard, you know, and then and then immediately going and passing that egg, no problem. It was like, okay, I got to. Well, I also think yeah, about that, it because I think that's they, really interesting. They sometimes, I know they Sorry, use right. oxytocin for, for mm-hmm. you know, eggs, but I've also heard calcium. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if because of that, that UV that helps mm-hmm. them with, with calcium production, totally. if that had any, if that's one of the reasons that it, it made that happen. I mean, I don't, it, it could have been that, knows. but like even at that time I, I did have them with UV at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, but who knows? Like, yeah, it's well, like, that's also full spectrum, right? It's Compared totally, to exactly. the, it's totally not the same thing. It's like, you can't beat the sun. You know, I, it's like, if I could, I would keep everything outside, you know, but you know, mm-hmm. I live in Northern California and it's, it's 110 degrees out here in the summer and, you know, 40 in the winter. And that's not good for a, neither, yeah. neither of those is good for a, an Amazonian snake. So, Have you done any experimenting as far as the UV and like moving it? Like Dr. Dr. Loafman, uh, he talked about with his, his false water cobras, or at least one in particular, um, he had UV on that one and he would move that UV bulb to a different part of the cage like daily. And that female yeah. would follow that UV wherever it went. Have you yeah. done anything like that with, with the Spilotes? Or? I haven't done that with the Spilotes, but I've done it with the Xenodon with the tricolors. And do you have the same, same results more or less? Yeah. The, um, so I noticed it mostly with my male, which for, for whatever reason, the male in my pair spends a lot more time asking the female. They, I, I've, I observed both of them basking and they both do semi-regularly, but the male is like pretty consistent. Like he'll come out and he'll, he'll chill right under these UVB and, um, and he'll, he'll, he does go under the halogen too, but not as much, um, which is interesting. But, um, especially like when he's like going into a shed cycle or something like that, like he'll just chill like in bask right in the UVB. And sometimes he'll do it cryptically where like he'll have, um, part of his body kind of hidden, but part of it is like very clearly exposed to the UVB. Um, and yeah, that, I did that in the setups that I had the tricolors in before I had them in just like modified tote setups. And I did move around the UVB a few times just to see what he would do. And yeah, he, he would follow it. And he would also climb up into the branches too, which is like, that's another thing, you know, these, these snakes are, you know, they're, as fossorial as, as they can be. But, you know, if you give them the chance to climb and the chance to go up, up to UVB, they'll still do it. Mm-hmm. Pretty crazy. Yeah. I'm anxious to try it with the, with the Jansen eye and see if that makes any sort of difference as far as breeding activity or anything like yeah. that. Um, Cause I mean, I pretty much keep them cohab most of the time. I'll separate them for a week or two, you know, to, yeah. to make sure the male gets fed and stuff like that. But um I mean, do you think that that UV had any effect as far as breeding the Xenodon or the the Spilotes? It's hard to say. I mean, the Xenodon are so, they're so they're such vigorous breeders that I yeah, it kind of doesn't matter. You could breed them in the dark. Matter. Like they would they would breed in a in a cardboard box in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> they're just uh, they're pretty vigorous. But with the with the Spilotes, I I don't I'm not sure what made the difference, honestly, because because, again, I was providing the UV and everything. I've been providing that since day one with them. Um, 
but I, yeah, but this is the first year that went. And I think that honestly, there's a lot of, fa- I changed a lot of things this year. So I kind of made it hard on myself in some ways in terms of like nailing down, like, okay, what was the thing I did that, that right. actually got them to go this year? Because one, they moved into this huge enclosure. Um, two, I went from hand misting to an automatic misting system, uh, Miss King, which made me, I, I could control the variables of the misting more accurately you mm-hmm. know also missed at night and things like that um and then the other thing was that i i i food cycled a little bit more intensely this year like i i really let them fast for a while um longer than i normally would and when i would feed them i would give them a smaller meal and then you know i ramped up food ramped up misting significantly and how long how long did you ramp up food for like what was the window that you were like really feeding them how long was that so i did three months off basically where i was feeding them like every 14 to 21 days mm-hmm. um, and in that period of time i was misting them far less frequently and then i ramped up misting and then i started feeding weekly um, or like every five days um just smaller small prey items just boom 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 here here's here's a bunch of food and um I actually never saw them locked, um, which is interesting. I think that they, um, they're pretty shy snakes in some mm-hmm. ways. I, I would see them coiled up together in the hide and stuff like that. So I don't know if they like locked in there or if I just, you know, they're locked in the branches at some point. I just didn't see it, but, um, but yeah, when this female, it was the same female again, that cycled eggs this year. And I was kind of like, okay, here we go. More infertile eggs are coming. Like, <laughs> you know kind of it's always kind of a disappointment for me because i'm just like i'd rather that she just put that energy into body condition and continuing to grow you know but she's like no man i'm gonna have i'm gonna have babies <laughs> and um and then this year she lays this clutch and i'm like holy shit those eggs look different they're um they're not <laughs> those are white they're white and like beautiful <laughs> <laughs> so. That's awesome. Well, how are you, how are you incubating? Are you, did you pull them in uh, an artificial incubator or are you trying to do a maternal thing? I, I pulled them. They're in the, I've got a, like a, one of the sea serpents hot box incubators and um, yeah, put them in there. That's what I've got. Yeah. It seems great so far. And um, right now I think we're at like 45 days and it'll probably be somewhere 100, 110, somewhere in there, I think for the sploties. Hopefully they'll go. I'm like trying not to, you know, get excited because if these eggs hatch, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be over the moon because it'll be yeah. know, that I hatched. It's, it's the first snake I ever hatched um, was these yeah. when I was a teenager. And, um, you know, I have it full circle. One of these snakes that I hatched, you know, 14 years later, he's, you know, he's an old snake now. And I wasn't even sure if he could get the right. at this point. So if um, the eggs hatch, I'll be pretty stoked. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, I'll be keeping my fingers crossed for you and hope that they uh, they go the distance. Thanks, man. Yeah, appreciate with, it. You just, gotta the forget, you just gotta forget them about them, though. I know. Put them in the incubator and forget about them. Don't even I'm, look at them. Like, not look at them. <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, like even with the with the cyania eggs, man. It's like God, these things take forever, and then you have you get like <laughs> corn or Baird's eggs, and they hatch in like half the time, and it's like you yeah. blink and they're hatching. It's like this is totally awesome. You're waiting for 106 days for cyania to hatch. It's like oh my god, yeah, it's crazy. 
I mean, these monkey lizards that just hatched, that was like, it was 160 days. Oh, what? And it was terrible because I, I couldn't find any anyone who had hatched them, really. Um, and so I had like, I have like this German book that I literally, I translate the whole book in on Google Translate <laughs> from oh German. Oh, my David, God. Typing, it out, typing out by hand. And um, just to try and get any information I can about these lizards. And um, and th- the incubation section is like all over the place. It's like, yeah, this person incubated them at this temperature, 130 days. This person incubated them, same temperature, 253 days. I'm like, what the hell? Like, that's, that's not accurate. There's something wrong here. Oh, my God. So I was just like, uh, you know, by, by the time day 130 came around, I was just like, these things are they gonna hatch or are they not gonna hatch like what's going on that's wild that's super cool though (laughs) that's dedication right there too man my god you typed in a whole book for in the uh, yeah (laughs) google translate man that's dedication right there respect that's awesome what you gotta do sometimes yeah when there's nothing else yeah yeah with the the Miss King, do you have any sort of drainage or anything like that in that setup? Like, do you ever, or did the I plants don't. seem to do most of the work as far as keeping that pretty intact? Yeah, yeah, the plants do most of the work. I haven't had any issues with like um with with the drainage at all. There is a very shallow drainage layer in all my setups, or, or at least in the tropical setups, mm-hmm. and it, it it just hasn't been an issue. The and the, also the substrate layers are deep. So like there's like almost a foot of substrate in this floating oh, setup. Wow. Um, and in the monkey lizard setups, it's like 10 inches or eight inches of substrate. And um, part of the reason why I did that for the monkey lizards is actually, I think that that may have been part of the issue with, with losing the female um, when I, when I had them was that she laid like half her, her clutch, but then, stopped laying and i think that she just didn't quite have the nesting site that she wanted and Mm -hmm. i think it may have been a substrate depth thing so i i just added a bunch more substrate and switched out the setups and hopefully if i you know if i yeah down the road and have another female lay eggs i won't i won't experience the same thing but something like eight out of ten people that i was able to track down between the u.s and europe who have had monkey lizards lay eggs most of them were or almost all of them were were imported females and like eight out of ten of them died um soon after egg Mm. so i was just like there's something going on here like what are we doing wrong and somebody's doing something wrong like we gotta figure this out so trying to figure it out makes sense if something like a substrate layer i mean if you don't have you know, a proper nesting area for them. They're just going to get freaked out while they're trying to nest. And that's the worst time to have an animal freak Ooh. out, you know? And so that, I mean, that makes perfect sense. If, if a lot of them seem to be dropping off after they drop their clutches, I mean, that would, you know, it's a serious thing. And, you know, maybe they're not getting out all of their eggs or, mm-hmm they're using too much of their energy and calcium to get them out because they're not under proper conditions totally. and they're stressing, you know? And Yeah. There's so many different factors to consider. It's like, yeah. and also with this, with this female that I had, she was like in, in amazing shape. Cause she, she was captive hatched 
and I, ha- I raised her from a baby and she was like the biggest, healthiest lizard of that species I've ever seen. You know, she looked, looked amazing because you know, all of them are wild caught and they usually look pretty rough. And, um, and she ended up producing like a dozen eggs, which for, for this lizard, it was, it was a lot of freaking. Yeah. Eggs. They're not big lizards. She's not a big lizard. She was like 80 grams. Um, you know, Oh my egg for a monkey lizard. Yeah. And she produced a dozen eggs. And I think that in some ways I was, wow. uh, it made me wonder, like, I was like, okay, was she like over conditioned? Like, was I feeding her too mm-hmm. much or something like that? Because she was such a healthy, like robust lizard. She was like a little chubby maybe. Um, I, and I, I honestly, I don't know if that's, if that even makes sense. You know, I would think that, well, you know, they're going to do what they can handle, but it's with these, you know, kind of species where they're not fully established yet. It's like, you got to just do trial and error to some extent, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, you're doing what was done 30 years ago and the trying to figure it out and navigate it. Yep. Just trying to figure it out. And, and talking to other people, I was even talking to some folks in Germany and, and, you know, he and I were chatting and he's like, maybe they're like, they have a life cycle, like veiled chameleons where they pretty much just like lay eggs and die, you know? Yeah. and I was like, maybe. And so then I, but then there are these other people who had them lay eggs and they didn't die. And so I'm like, okay, well, there's a couple outliers there that make mm-hmm. that not seem to make sense. So we're trying to figure it out, but who knows? It could be, could be a while before I get it down. If anybody listening has any ideas, get at me. <laughs> I bet hey, money Rob Stone has kept them at some point or another. <laughs> Even if he Rob hasn't, I bet you he's got an idea. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure someone out there is is hearing this and is like, "Oh, this amateur, what is he doing?" <laughs> well, that's what's frustrating this, with the Jansen and I, man. Bad. Is I've <laughs> talked to uh, the different people and said, like, you know, that have produced them and hatched them, and like, what you you know, did you do anything in particular to get to get eggs? And they were like, "Nope, just kept them together." I'm like, well, "What am I doing wrong then?" I think may the only thing I can think of is they need a little more time and a little more size to them. Also, Maybe they, the male you in particular. To, you also have to think, dude. You haven't had them that, that long. Like, yeah, like they've they've been with you for a minute now, but it hasn't been that long. At least you know to get them acclimated, you know, super duper acclimated, acclimated. Especially if you're, you're going to change enclosures again, you know, because stuff like changing yeah, cages that might set them back. Huge. It's a big change, so you know, I let them let them sit. Like once you get them in this new spot, let them sit for two, three years, and I, I would think at that point, maybe you could see a little bit more um, progression with them. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like <laughs> I feel like this kind of stuff is it's like kind of on, on one level, it's like the most frustrating part for the culture, but it's also kind of like why we keep doing it on another level, too, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, kind of, it's like exciting, because it's, it's like yeah, trying it's to crack a code that no one wanted to try and bother and crack. Out. Yeah, totally, you know, you're yeah. trying, trying to crack the code and figure it out, and and it's super rewarding when you actually do make things happen. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I was mm-hmm. super stoked when the monkey lizards bred, you know, and um, just to like have confirmed locks and like I did you know, the same thing. I did like a food cycling thing, and it like worked. It was like boom right away. They 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 were mating, and I was like, awesome, cool. This is this is great. To have this part figured out, and then the whole egg thing happened, and it just like took the wind out of my sails. So I'm like, okay more to learn more to keep doing here with these it's, yeah. it's having that balance of the stuff that requires 
a certain level of stress to be successful with them and then having the stuff yeah. that they you know like the xenodon where it's like you don't you can just enjoy it like you can just you know yeah. they're gonna be you're not gonna have to worry about them they're just gonna be good totally. to go yeah i feel like those and then the gary notice that the texas alligator lizards they're my easy ones right now they're like they're just totally chill you know they <laughs> i feed them they eat <laughs> and um, they cut they eat they sleep <laughs> You know, I, I I reach in there with um with a handful of crickets and they're on me. <laughs> yeah, the monkey lizards are like, you put it down and then walk away. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Don't look you at set me. it over there and then I'll exactly. think about it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's funny, man. <laughs> Leave them at the door. Yeah. I've exactly. got some. Pitch you, I've got some pitch you opus like that, man. Some of them come flying out the enclosures, but I've got two. They're like, you, all right, you set it down, and then, then, <laughs> then we'll, we'll talk. But you got to get out of here first. You know, won't even. That's how it is with that little male subak I have. Like, he, I know he's almost always in his hide. I never really see him, but I'll put, put it a, down. Like, a, a deli cup lid in there with a fuzzy or something on it. And I'll come back, come back the next, next morning. It'll be gone. Like I never see them, but I always just leave little presents, <laughs> and they always disappear. It's, it's like yep, having a little yep. little garden gnome. Totally. <laughs> and if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, it's like all right. Yeah, you do yeah exactly, hand, man. I'm not gonna rock the boat. Like you do, you. Yeah, that's cool, man. And I've actually, I'm trying to do that with more of my stuff. I actually have like little, cause like we use these little um, plastic cups from um, from the Dollar Tree for water dishes. And they come with green lids, and I never used the lids for anything. But I was like, man, I could start using these as little food dishes. Nice little plates. Yeah, so I've, yeah, yeah. So I've started setting my mice on there, and then just putting them in the enclosures and letting them come come out and get it. Sometimes I'll like kind of tease them with it, like I'll wiggle it in front of them, and I'll drop it on there, and they'll come take it off of that. But um, I'm also just super paranoid about them eating loose substrates. I just switched everything on the aspen again. Well, all the colubrids, at least, on the aspen. Yeah. I'm super paranoid about them, so I, I give them a little, little plate. But, yeah, that can be a little bit stressful. Yeah. They'll probably pass it, though. I feel like sometimes... Yeah, they probably pass it, and like snakes will spit, small spit it out, too. Like, you'll see right. them, like, they're just like, uh, yeah, they'll move their jaws around, they'll just, yeah. like, kind of plop it out, you know? And, totally. Because it's, like, it's not like they're not eating, you know, dirt and leaves and anything else that gets caught up and they're prey out in the wild you know it's not a like nice they're getting plates strand right. of aspen makes me a little more concerned yeah yeah that's a little yeah. More concerning yeah me. yeah i've definitely seen the hog yeah. noses get some substrate yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they're pretty yeah. gluttonous too. No. they're just like they're very food motivated little snakes oh yeah oh yeah man hog what i gotta are, do with the crazy with the field collected corns, I got to almost okay. separate them into another tub because they will just drag it through. Like I can't dry it off enough <laughs> yeah. all over the tub. And I'm like, dude, you were killing me. And so I'm picking them up while they're wrapped around it and trying to like get as much Aspen off That's before. Tough. It's like, y'all are the worst. Yeah. That's why you just drop them in there, man. And hope they come up to it. Yeah. I did find that, uh, that stuff at Walmart. What is it? That, that KT brand clean comfort it's all natural like paper oh, bedding that, but i like it so much there. more than the the care fresh like i'm sold yeah. on this stuff now man i'm gonna switch everything from aspen onto that really fresh being super dusty i haven't used it in <clears throat> yeah this stuff isn't like at all 
Like even the 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 critter care is a little dusty. But like this doesn't have any of it, and this is almost like I did a little video on it, and I described it almost more like leaf litter than, than cool. like bedding. Like yeah, it's super really. light, super super soft, like a lot of airflow and stuff through it. Um, I put some beards on it, and obviously they don't seem to care. But I definitely want to switch <laughs> switch stuff off off the aspen. I mean, I love aspen, but it. What do you like more about the? What do you like more about this stuff comparatively to Aspen? The lack of dust and it's bigger, like mm. particles, I guess, is a, uh, it's kind of hard. You'll have to see it when you come over next. Is it harder for them to, it's probably harder for them to eat? Um, it's a probably bulky. a little bit, but it would also be much easier for them to pass because it's very light. It's very thin, like hmm. almost like tissue paper that you would put in like a gift bag. Hmm. Right. It's, it's odd. Yeah, I think I, I like about. It. You said it's the and it's the brown stuff. You know, you said yeah. it's Katie from Walmart. But you can get it at Walmart, and it's they do so for the same price as a like the sixty liter bag of of Critter Care is twenty bucks. This is a seventy liter bag for the same price. Nice. So. Damn. And I used uh, I, I I did a couple of six quart tubs, and then some of the thirty twos. And I still have like a half a bag left. Like it, it expands. Like there's a lot in there. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. I don't know. I like it. To, might have to give. I have to switch up some of the stuff. I'll probably switch stuff over Let's to see. it this weekend. I haven't switched out bedding in any of my enclosures in like a year now because of the whole bioactive thing. Yeah, do you use a certain kind yeah. of isopod for that? I. I've thrown in like dwarf whites and mm-hmm. uh, powder, like the powder blues, powder oranges, those ones, but it doesn't really seem, I mean, the dwarf whites are pretty different. They're really small and they're more yeah. like in substrate, but um, I think it's honestly like the springtails are a big, are really, or are, are just as important, if not more important, I feel like. And, and like, I like turn the substrate every once in a while. Um, oh, like aerate it, kind of till it up a little bit. And... Yeah. Till it up a little yeah. bit and just like turn the nutrients. Cause you know, if, especially if your snakes are like crapping in the same area of the enclosure as they often mm-hmm. do, you know, you're going to get a higher nutrient load there than anywhere else. So you want to move it around. And, do you add like any... the, it just gets eaten at this point? Like mm-hmm. I can throw in like a grocery bag full of leaf litter and within like three weeks, I need, I need to throw in more because it's wow. just like, it's just I'm burning through it. Yeah. Yeah. Was there any particular as far as like the soil and substrate layers and stuff? Are you using just like ABG or you find something specific? I kind of, I kind of just make my own mixes um, depending on the different species. I, I, I um, with kind of more like the arid stuff, I like to use decomposed granite as a base just cause it's like, it's like got sandy kind of particles, but it's also got larger particles that are like bigger kind of rock aggregate almost. And, um, it holds burrows pretty well in my experience, but I'll use that and mix, mix in some sand sometimes. Um, and I can just get that, you know, at like the, at like the, um, you know, the landscaping supply place, yeah. you know, it's like $3 for a five, five gallon bucket, you know? And then, um, for the tropical setups, I usually make a mix of, um, like sphagnum peat moss, um, sand, and um charcoal is a good one i think charcoal really helps just like with like just it's just like a natural filter yeah um, helps with it helps with odor too a lot it's also cheap 
Exactly. Little bags of lump lump charcoal. Exactly. You just I never, I never, th- I never thought about using it in enclosures, man. That's a, that's a good yeah. idea. Yeah. So I, I mix it in with the substrate and then, and then just like a layer of leaf litter on top. And, um, like I said, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, I'm not, I haven't been super scientific and like, you know, try a different rate. I kind of do everything by feel, you know, I'm just like, mm-hmm. okay, this feels like a good forest substrate. You know, I, like I spend enough time outside, you know, and like I can pay attention to the soil composition in different areas. And, um, and so I just kind of base it off of that just by the feel more than anything. But mm-hmm. actually one is, I think I actually, I think one time I did actually do like a recipe when I was, um, when I was making it for, for the, the Spilotes article I have on my website, there's like a recipe on there somewhere of what I use for them kind of in, in ratios to help break it down. But, um, yeah, it's, it's not, not super formulaic for me. Mm-hmm. Just, just by feel. I don't know. I did dart frogs for a while and like I, I was sh- for the first two or three tanks, I was shelling out a ton of money for ABG mix. And then I finally realized like I can make yeah. a metric ton of this for literally a third of the cost that that oh. ABG cost. And uh, so I was doing like some Cypress mulch mixed with just some like topsoil, but also some like eco earth. And then I'd actually take some of that uh, critter care and mix yeah. it in there a little bit. Cause that'd be good to break down, you know, nice. something for the, to break down. And then I'd also actually for the plants, I'd add some coffee grounds in there as well. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think that really helped some of those plants really take off. Um, That's awesome. Cause my wife drinks a ton of coffee. So there's always coffee grounds and now she mixes it in with her plants on the porch and stuff. So <laughs> there you go. And I'd add Man, some of that charcoal. <laughs> nice. Man, yeah. we're, we're in here talking about all this now and I'm looking at these rat snakes I got and I'm like, man, when they get to adult size, I might have to set them up and, and something like that. Try a little bioactive, a little bioactive yeah. stuff going on with some of them, man. Some things, I mean, I think it really works. I mean, the first, the, for the first few months with the Spilotes, I would still remove like large, you know, chunks of waste and stuff like that when they would scat, but Right. Now, honestly, I, I rarely even do because there's so much, there's so many isopods and there's so mm-hmm. many cells in there that I don't even need to. Like, I'm just like, okay, right. like I like, turn the soil over it and just leave it. And within, you know, three days, it's like gone and there's never yeah. any or anything like that, which is really it's nice. pretty crazy how, how, how much work springtails put in if you got enough of them in there, like, yeah. something so tiny. <laughs> yeah. It's so tiny. And like, and, you know, like I seeded it with like a, like probably just like a the shoebox size amount of springtails, you know, mm-hmm. that I had been raising for a few months before I, the, the vid was ready. And now it's like they're in every, you know, square inch of that soil. I added some to egg boxes when I was incubating. Yeah. Yeah. I do that too. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's just like one of those things where it's like, well, may as well, you know, just, it's not going to, yeah, it's not like it's going to hurt anything. Yeah. They're not going to hurt anything. I mean, isopods would eat the eggs, but. I don't know. I had some powder oranges in with one of my clutches of cyania eggs and I'd see them sitting on the eggs, but I never saw any signs of damage or anything like that. So I think it really depends more on what species you're using. Like if it's yeah, like dwarf, totally. like powder oranges and powder blues that aren't super calcium, yeah, you know, big calcium eaters like some of the other species are. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's not a bad idea, but springtails for sense. sure. Yeah. That's rad. 
So do you have a recommendation as far as UV bulbs? Um, do you try to stick to sort of the lower, I guess, spectrum would be the, like, because there's yeah. different levels. I'm, I'm super unhip to a lot of the UV stuff, honestly. So anything I say about UV is, is just me <laughs> thinking out loud, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, honestly, I think that, yeah, I mean, starting off, if you're not sure too, it's like good probably to start off with like a lower, um, lower power, you know, UV. I use, I use them. It all depends on the setup, you know, with like the really tall vertical setups. I use the 6% Arcadia's I, with the monkey lizards and the splodies, I could probably use like a higher percentage Arcadia bowl, like a 12% just because there's enough space for them to move around. But I actually like, I get the UVI, like the index that I want on the basking areas without that. So I'm just mm -hmm. like enough, you know, and um, I'm, again, like I said, I'm more worried about over provision than I am under provision. And so, um, I just do that. And then with the Xenodon, because they're, they're in like 18 inch tall setups, so they don't have quite as much height. Um, I use the Arcadia shade dweller, which is just like a little 12 inch one too, which is really nice because, um, you know, they can get closer to it. Um, you know, you can, you can use it for shorter, shorter, um, distances. Yeah. Um, without frying stuff. And then the other thing is like, it creates a more focused area um, for mm -hmm. basking because of that 12 inch length, which I really like. And um, I also have that on the, like the baby monkey lizards that I'm raising right now. I have those on them and um, I really like those. I think that those are a really great one to start out with the shade dwellers. And do you have them on any sort of timer? Or do you have them on for 12 hours? Um, yeah. So that's the other thing I forgot to mention. Yeah. I do have them on timers. So the way that I have my lights set up, um, I've got um, the halogens are on herpostats. And so they do the, they ramp up in the morning, kind of like sunrise and then ramp down at night, um, which they are kind of doing right now, but it's hard to tell with my room lights. Um, what do you use to do that? Um, it's just, it's on the herpostat. So they have a, they have a ramping feature. Okay. They call it ramping. And um, I think it's like, I set the ramping for like an hour and a half or two hours or whatever. And it just, mm -hmm. it just slowly goes up, you know, from 0% power to, to whatever I max out the power on. And, um, so I, they, those come on first in the morning for everything. Um, and then next the LEDs come on and those are on like a 11, 10 and a half hour cycle. And then the, the UV comes on last and that's on like an eight hour cycle okay. for my, um, for my like, tropical stuff. Um, and I think it's actually a little bit of a longer cycle. It, it depends. Cause my, like the, like the Xenodon and stuff like that, I, I do, I match the photo period to where they are. And, you know, in the peak of summer, it's like a 14 hour, you know, mm -hmm. daylight cycle. And in the winter it's like a 10 hour daylight cycle. So it'll, it'll fluctuate, but. I do um, have the UV on for the shortest period of time, just because it's the most um, intense light. Like it's in terms of like the color temperature, mm -hmm. like the halogens are super warm and like really yellow color, right? right. Whereas UV bulbs are like the super bright blue light. And um, so I think it makes sense to have that kind of be the peak of the day, if that makes sense. You mm -hmm. notice your plants grow better with UV? I, I haven't really noticed a huge difference, honestly. Um, I think that because honestly, because the LEDs I use are so overpowered, I think that like 
it doesn't even really matter because i use like, <laughs> got like the jungle dawn bars in with the spilotes and the monkey lizards and they're like just crazy bright leds and so Blinding. yeah they they put out a ton of light and the plants grow like crazy under those which is really nice but um and the xenodon i i actually have um some like argentine grasses from where they're from that i've been oh, trying cool. to but I haven't been able to successfully transplant them into their new setups yet. I had them in their old setups, like when the modified tubs and they did fine in there, but for whatever reason, their new setups, they won't go yet. So I'm trying to figure out how to get them in there. Yeah. Grasses always seem like a tricky one to kind of make. Yeah. Take off. Totally. Yeah. It's a little bit trickier, but I think it'd be so cool if there's just some like little clump grasses Mm -hmm. in there. Yeah. Cause that's what it's from. They're they're grassland. snakes you know it's like it's funny the tricolors like i think a lot of people they're like oh they're from south america like they're they're from the amazon you know <laughs> and they like you know people on the tricolor groups and stuff post them and they're like in rainforest habitats and i'm like that's not where that snake came from <laughs> it looks like it would but yeah but it's almost you like, know the amazon's not completely rainforest <laughs> south america has other parts yeah well, hell, I mean, even the like, and if I don't know if you saw the Revenant or not, but like the scenes towards the end where he's ta- you know, Leo's chasing Tom Hardy around, that was shot in Argentina, and that's you would think that was like Canada or something. Yeah, yeah, it looks like it was like probably Patagonia or something, right? Like, like the mountains. Yeah, down there. that's yeah. cool. The Andes that's, or something. I would have never known that that was Argentina. Yeah, it's wild. That's a trip, man. But you're yeah. also so you're doing varied diets as well. Yeah, I like to do Yeah, and I mean, I like to focus the diets um, as much as I can to what they're getting in the wild. So, like, particularly with the tricolors, I think that that is could be could prove to be beneficial. It's like I don't really know. No one's really done the no one's done the study yet, the longitudinal study. But you know, everything that we've been able to find about the like the wild diet of Xenodon is that they're like amphibians and squamate eggs and occasionally lizards. They're not eating rodents really at all. Um, and so I've been focusing on feeding them mostly, uh, the reptilinks, like the iguana reptilinks, um, and the, the quail and frog reptilinks. And then I'll also give them like button quail, um, things like that. Um, and occasionally I'll give them a mouse just for like variety. But I think that uh, an all mouse diet for them is probably too fatty. It's like, just, it's might just, be yeah, it's probably a lot. I personally think like, an all mouse diet for most <laughs> animals is, yeah. is fatty. Cause it's like, you gotta think, you know, even rat snakes and stuff, like most of the rat snakes you find around here are around chicken coops. Yeah, totally. They're eating chicken eggs and small eggs. chicks, you know, like rat snakes will eat the hell out of granted. Yes. They're called rat snakes. Like, <laughs> Like, that's yeah, why everyone looks at it from rats, a practicality you know, standpoint like, too like eggs are yeah. eggs aren't going to run away eggs are an easy meal yeah. eggs require yeah. next to no energy yeah. to catch you know exactly you know like they they eat all types of stuff you know like i guarantee rat snakes eat a ton of birds out you know around here you know back. and the baby rabbits you know know i'm sure things like that you know i'm sure mice and rats are you know just you know a, a, a dent sliver of the all yeah. the stuff that they eat you know yeah exactly and, and i mean in particular with the tricolors there there's a long pattern at this point of like 
people think tricolors, people say often like tricolors only live six to eight years and then they die. And that may be their life cycle, but I, I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm like, well, maybe that's just that we're like feeding them the wrong thing and then they get fatty mm-hmm. liver and they die. Right. Because also a ton of them have, have been necropsied have had fatty liver. And so it seems like, okay, let's try and, okay, first of all, let's feed them less because I think people probably overfeed them too. You know, there's, they're often yeah. pretty, it's like if you're getting a ton of scale separation on your snakes, you're probably overfeeding them. When they look like a stuffed sausage. Yeah. yeah, regardless of what the snake is, you know, if you're getting a bunch of scale separation, unless it's a gravid female, it's just, it's probably not a good sign. So I try to give them those, the, the reptile links and stuff like that. With the Spilotes, I really like to vary their diet too. Um, and mostly birds and um, rodents' eggs. Um, one thing I've been doing lately that's been really fun is I've been, been getting those, like, big seed pods is like monkey pods they call them mm-hmm. i mount those in the branches and fill them with with eggs and the snakes totally find them and just chow on all the eggs and they love it and i think that's also just like good mental stimulation for them yeah too. for sure foraging for food you know and so like know, smelling it like, but not being able to find it yeah exactly yeah. Sometimes they'll put like rat pups in there or like something something way smaller than they're normally going to eat but it's like okay this is a nest so like you're going to find a nest right. in the wild you know and um and so i'll do that but um with the splodies i mostly i mostly emphasize birds with them i think that they probably eat birds more than they do rodents in the wild but again it's like until you have like really robust studies on like their diets and stuff like that which we just don't at this point it's all speculation. It's mm-hmm. I'm basing that mostly off of habitat, but down there, they're probably also eating things like little, you know, possums and stuff like that. Cause down in South right. America, you got all kinds of like, yeah, there's no possums. shortage of options. Yeah. There's so yeah. much in there. And so again, it's like, okay, well, if there's so much diversity where they're from, they're eating, we know that they, they, um, they eat a lot of different prey. Like, let's just give them variety. And so that's what I do. And, um, like with the Spilotes too, it's interesting because they actually, with their venom, apparently they have two different venom compounds that evolved independently. Um, and one is strictly immobilizes birds and lizards, but has no effect on mammals. And the other affects mammals, but has no effect on birds and lizards. So it's like, you wow. know, that, like, these are animals that are definitely eating a variety of prey yeah you know, probably different. literally anything you know yeah, uh, you know especially different. stuff because like a lot of stuff you also have to think of like squirrels you yeah, know totally. like obviously i don't know what south american squirrels look like i, I don't know anything mm-hmm. about that but like i know around here like these are squirrel nests you know they have all yeah. t- kinds of little yeah. tiny babies you know and there's plenty of mammals like that and even rats and mice you'll see them going across a tree branch like it's nothing yeah. you know and any of those yeah. little little mammals, man, you know, and totally. Someone posted a video not that long ago. It was funny. It was I had, I had been like driving and I saw like a roadkill squirrel and I was driving and then I somehow like I they got me thinking. I was like, I wonder if Splody's these squirrels in the wild. And within like a couple of days of that, someone posted a video on the Spilotes page on Facebook of a a wild Mexican Spilotes eating a squirrel. <laughs> I was like, oh, I didn't answer that one. Oh, that, <laughs> like, there is that. Convenient. And um, yeah, so there's, you know, they're, they're getting all kinds of stuff and I try to give them as much diversity. I give them quail, um, chicks, rats, mice, um, eggs. I'm actually, the, the thing that I want to start raising is actually pigeons. <laughs> this is kind of absurd, but 
Um, I've got, I've got yeah. a ton of space here and um, I'm thinking like, I kind of want to like raise, like, I, I know that they're eating like birds. They're not poultry essentially, you know, they're eating like yeah. song yeah. and like passerines and so like parrots that. and right. stuff like that. Yeah. And parrots and all, Parakeets. all kinds of stuff, you know? And so I'm like, okay, let's how can I get more bird diversity? Right. And I was like, and so I actually got a couple pigeon chicks and they went nuts for them. So I'm going to start trying to get those in their diet more occasionally too. And, and the other thing that I think about is like, yeah, I, these different things that they're eating are also eating different things too. Mm -hmm. So like, right. Feeder like diet alone. Yeah, exactly. You know, like the feeder diet is also, they're eating that stuff as well. And so they're getting secondary nutrition from that. Mm -hmm. That's I'm a, I'm very, very big on, on feeding, like giving feeders more than just rodent block, you know? Yeah. Totally. I I, I give mine like I get the royal wing bird seed that has like mealworms and all the different kinds of nuts and seeds and stuff and yeah um, either some sort of like meadow hay or alfalfa I'll change it up you know I really try to give them a variety instead of just you know rodent pellet yeah that makes great that yeah and you know it's funny you it's funny you brought up pigeons because right before you you said that i started yeah i started thinking about um doves because mm -hmm. around here i've actually found um i found rattlesnakes up underneath dove feeders like cause i used to work on a plantation we had it was a big hunting plantation and so we had like feeders that would throw out corn and stuff. And I found rattlesnakes sitting directly under where all the corn gets thrown out. Cause all the, all kinds of doves would come up, you know, and you know, we built coops for doves and pigeons. And it's like, man, as you were talking, I was like, man, that's not a bad idea. If you start raising yeah. your own doves and pigeons and stuff, man, that'd be that's a totally great exactly. idea. Yeah. And then I can control what they're eating too and make sure that it's uh -huh. like a really nutritious feeder. Like for my lizards. Yeah. I raise all my feeders for them. So I, I give them like three different species of roach. And then, um, I also have two different species of stick insects that I feed the oh, wow. monkey lizards. Wow. That's super cool. I think that that's like a big part of their diet. Um, just cause they're, they're really weird lizards. They're like pretty chameleon. Like they're pretty slow. Um, and they're kind of like ambush predators or like they'll like see something and then they'll kind of like slowly approach it and kind of sneak up on it. Um, and I think that their species like that are often adapted to eating larger prey because they're not mm -hmm. frequently. It's not as and difficult so, to catch too. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so I think, and I've, I've like gone through on like iNaturalist and stuff like that. And I've seen several photos on iNaturalist of like monkey lizards with like huge stick insects in their mouths or like big cicadas, like food that you would think would be even too big for them to eat. Right. Right. And so I, f I found some stick insects um, and offered them in like, I saw like the a feeding response from them that I'd never seen before. Like they were just like all over them. And so um, I, I was like, okay, I'm gonna start raising these. So I started raising those and occasionally I'll give them praying mantids as well. And like those, they also have their own strategy for catching those so that the mantids can't fight. They're like, right. Like, by the, by their forearms. So they can't jab them. <laughs> like, have, you, have you ever thought about like um grasshoppers and stuff like yeah that. i totally wanted to, I, i've thought about grasshoppers and um they're just like i think that they're they need a lot of heat to breed you, you got to keep them hot and um 
with the space that I have, like, I just don't, I don't want to like use a ton of heat to do it. Yeah. Because it will yeah. another feeder area. And so I'm trying to like, when I get down the road and I have a little bit more space, I can space them further away from my other feeders. I'll, I'll probably get grasshoppers in the mix too, but I definitely want to do that. Yeah, Cause there's a guy that we had him on the show. He was one of our first guests. His name's Kai fan. Yeah. He's been producing a stupid amount of grasshoppers. Yeah, he yeah, does like yeah, the really yeah. big ones, right? Doesn't he do yeah, like one of the gigantic yeah, species? Yeah, they're huge. I think he's got a bunch of different kinds now. He actually, so yeah, he, he's got all kinds. Yeah, I, I saw it. So he, he's on like the breeding grasshoppers Facebook group and stuff. And I'm on there, you know, and I've, um, I think I've actually met Kai at reptile shows a couple of times. Like, okay, like, yeah. Just like in passing, but, um, Cause he's, he's in California too. I think like, he's, yeah, he is. Like, yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, so he's not far from me. And, um, yeah, he recently, not that long ago, he had some like Katie did like some like bush crickets. And I, mm. I was like, those I want, like, <laughs> like I gotta get those. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing with like grasshoppers is a lot of the eggs, you have to put them through a diapause. So you have to like refrigerate them. And then it's just, uh, I, I don't really, know, but I'm just of, like, a lot of work. Hey, how much, how much I'm already like spending way too much time down here in this basement. Like, <laughs> <laughs> What's well, a little bit more. Uh, you know? But um, I always yeah, forget yeah. other parts of the world have basements. We don't have basements here. Basements <laughs> yeah, no, you're like below basements. sea level. You Honestly, it's kind of weird to have one here. Well, we have one because this is a really old house. Um, at least old for this area. You know, this house was built in like the thirties, which is it haunted. Um, that's old for around here you know, in this part of California. And, um, there was a root cellar. So like this basement was like, they would just store all their food down here. And it's amazing yeah. because like I said, it's like where I live, um, it's 110 degrees outside on in summer days on average and frying. And I couldn't even, I don't even think I could have the herbs in our house because it just gets too hot in there, mm -hmm. especially with the, the supplemental light um your supplemental heat from their lights and everything it would just be too much so i actually when i moved here i i had to put in a many 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 hours of work to get this basement into a condition that could actually have the herbs down here because it was like a neglected space for many years and there were like rat nests and there was like a dead possum. Ah, bodies and no man <laughs> And, and, oh, that's crazy. <laughs> I was like, this will be the coolest herp room ever someday. <laughs> yeah, in a year. <laughs> have a priest yeah, come down yeah, man, and excise awesome. all the demons. Exactly. <laughs> the amazing thing I was going to say is that it's like, it's 110 degrees outside, but in here, it's 65 degrees year round Oof. in the basement. Wow. Which is like it's That's so crazy, crazy man. You know? And so then I in my other room, in you know, my temperate room, it can keep things cool in there, you know. Oh, it's man, like it's a bunker. Otherwise it's just it wouldn't be doable here. I yeah. Mean, yeah, yeah. I've got I'm I come from the Midwest and everybody out there, man, yeah, everybody's got a basement out there. Oh, I mean, yeah. out there you have to. Yeah. You know, and uh um, for the for then, the tornadoes. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, man. And plus, like, like out in Wisconsin, a lot of it is to help with like freezing issues, right? Like, because it gets so cold. Like, I when I was I was born in January in Wisconsin, it was thirty below the day I was born. Wow. Yeah, you know, like that's that's cold. That's like freeze your lungs cold. Yeah, you know, freeze and, your lungs. Yeah, and like that, like dead ass. Like people with like if you have to like shield your face because like if you breathe in too hard, you'll freeze your lungs. Yeah. Um, but uh, you have to have basements around there, and I've got I've actually gone the other way. My buddy, I've got a buddy in Florida. His um his parents' house had a bomb shelter, and I was like, man, if you hook that thing up right, that'd be the coolest reptile space. <laughs> what? I know. So honestly, scary. I feel I feel spoiled by it now. Like I'm like I don't okay. ever want to move. But if I do move, I gotta like really, I gotta find a basement wherever I go. Yeah. <laughs> It seems a lot easier. It's like a lot easier to just maintain the temperature of everything. Mm, it's like you can add. Sure. It's a lot easier to add heat to things right. than take away heat. You know, it's like yeah, it's, it's it's way easier to add it than to take it away. I'm sure you have like the humidity and stuff and controlling that up. You know, on the main main house would would probably be yeah. an issue too, and and be a real pain. Totally, it would just everything would be dry out, and, and so it makes it a lot more possible to do it here and. Um, it's also, I mean, too, with like the fires and stuff now that we're getting like, so last year we were just like a couple miles away from the Southern edge of like the biggest wildfire in history the August mm -hmm. complex burning a million acres. You know? Like I look out my like window and it's just like a, like a mushroom cloud, you know, like dominating. It's like, this is the end Good when they look God. out the window and everything's destroyed. <laughs> I mean, it's seriously like, it's like that, man. There's like no sun because it, of the was, smoke. Literally one day the sun just didn't come out. Like it was weird because oh my god, because the frogs and the crickets were chirping because they thought it was nighttime. Dude, it was day. It was yeah. That's how it was when That's we had that weird, solar man. eclipse. I was yeah. I was sitting out with my buddy smoking a cigar and we watched because yeah. it was cloudy that day. But you could still like as soon yeah. as it started getting darker. All yeah. the bugs and stuff started started going. It was so eerie because <laughs> then as so, soon yeah. as it passed, yeah. went back to being dead silent. Like it yep. was really strange. Yeah, yeah. So it was like that for a full day here last year. There was one day blacked out, and um. So anyway, but with that, like we're just like the power grids are super unstable because they like they'll just they'll just turn off your power for like days at a time because they're worried about like power lines, like wind knocking power lines and causing fires. And so mm -hmm. um, it also just makes it way more doable to like have everything down here. Cause even if I had an AC unit, you know, running, it's like, that's got to run on power. And then I got, yeah. it's like, now I have a backup generator this year, but you know, up until a few years ago, this wasn't a thing, you know, now it's every year where we've got these right. fires. So yeah, that's how every that's every, how I'm starting the, to every feel part down of the country here, has man. its thing. Totally. Yeah, here it's hurricanes, you know, like and it's so crazy because it's like when I was a kid, like it really wasn't a thing. Like a bad hurricane coming through, like okay, but now it's like every year we prep for it, you know. Yeah. Like it's it is no joke. These totally. these natural disasters around the world, man. It's like they're more and more frequent and I'm just saying, man, you know, it's, we got, we got to do something or we're all going to be up in flames, man. I know it's, it's scary. It's I mean, bad. there's that fire. I don't, you, maybe you guys heard about it. There's a fire called the Tubbs fire, like in 2017, it burned 
burned a bunch of this town called Santa Rosa. It's like, that's the town I grew up in. And mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like a normal like city. And like it burned, like it's like a wildfire burned down a city, like half of, you know, this, this whole neighborhood of the city, which was like, you know, when you think of wildfires, you know, like, oh, like little towns on the woods maybe get affected. But like, this is like a, a big, you know, city, lots of concrete. It like just was a whole, whole ass city. Like, <laughs> okay, Jeez, man, that's crazy. <laughs> And you know, it's not even like the hurricanes that I necessarily worry about. It's the trees that get taken, yeah, like falling yeah, no, over. That's, that's what that's I'm paranoid about. Like the hurricane yeah. itself, I don't care. It's fine. I've I've stayed through plenty no, of yeah. them. It's no big deal. It's a lot of rain. It's a lot of wind. Whatever. It's the, the giant thing... like fifty foot pines that's right next to my house that I worry about it cutting it in two. Yeah. Yeah. No, around here, like if you don't live on the water, like hurricanes, like that's the only thing you have to worry about. Because like with the hurricane hurricanes will get some flooding but like if you're more inland or you're not you know on the water you really don't have to worry about it granted like if you're on the water and a lot of people around here live on the water mm-hmm. you're you're getting messed up you know because yeah. the entire some people it's zone. dry yeah no there's some areas some people have their houses literally 15 20 feet off the ground because yeah. water will literally go 15 20 feet up you know around here and it's especially with it's the tides and stuff bad. if there's like a king tide in the same conjunction as a hurricane yeah. it's unbelievable how high that was and that that almost always happens whenever we get a bad hurricane there's always a king tide that comes with it and when that happens boy you you better hope you're inland but other than that like out here you know right right now I'm staying um, on my parents property and you know they're they're pretty you know out here you know we're on five acres so like flooding and stuff it's not our yard gets gross you know because Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) because of flooding with water but not from the rivers you know but we're also surrounded by trees you know and that's that's the bad part you know with with the the hurricanes because even you know even something small like a cat one a cat one comes through it's going to take out all the stuff that's been on like the verge of breaking Right. Yeah, from the other know, hurricanes the in the previous dying. years. <laughs> yeah, all the exactly. Women. You know. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah, I I feel bad for I feel bad for this county if we get hit with a cat three. If we yeah. get hit with a cat three or worse, it's this Buford would be leveled. I have yeah. no doubt about it. That's spooky. It's, yeah, it's so like I, it's honestly like something like that I'm thinking about more and more is like how can I like yeah like have fail safes and backups you know mm-hmm. like got this like generator now got the herbs in the basement so like it's not gonna get too hot if power fails right. and stuff. but it's like you know there was a time like not that long ago when i wasn't really thinking about that stuff very much and it's like okay it's gonna be like this right. people gotta think about this now and um it's just another one of those things it's like you gotta gotta think about that it's like you gotta think about your gradients you gotta think about all this and now there's this other thing and um yeah it's it's hard because it's like it's 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 you gotta like learn how to think about these things. It's like it's all new in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, having a plan yeah. in place is that that and alone be, is a is a big help. That'd be yeah, a good topic. That'd be a good topic for a future episode, Justin. Is get a couple people on and talk about um yeah. natural disaster protocols. Totally. I'm I'm starting one right. I'm writing one right now for for my. I've got like you know, protocols for all kinds of things, like mm-hmm. in case of power outage, in case of like, right. happens to me, like these are where the herbs gotta go. This is I've thought right. about getting like a checklist together to put on the magazine website so that people yeah. can just like print it and have it on hand. And then it's like, you just, 
everything's thought of more or less and you just got to make sure everything's in, in you should you should get someone like from each different area you know do like roy for the wildfires and fires mm -hmm. in california do yourself for hurricanes find somebody you know who lives in tornado alley and yeah. then somebody Ooh. for somebody for earthquakes you know and if you could cover like all the spectrums and make like a sheet that people who live in those areas could go to to refer yeah. to that would be completely forgot yeah. about earthquakes yeah, yeah, earthquakes are definitely a thing. <laughs> yeah, that's the more that's a California thing too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to yeah, I'm actually like starting to work on a project. It's it's not really ready to to be talked about too much yet, but one of the things we're trying to do is like actually yeah, start talking talking about like yeah, how to empower people, how to think about these kinds of things, you know. But that's right. like also like the husbandry stuff, like making like workshops and like content and stuff like that around that. Just mm -hmm because it's it's so easy to just to just be like okay what's the what's the care sheet blah, blah 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 but it's um if you just like can learn so much more about how to keep herbs effectively if you actually think about like okay well where does it come from like what's how do you replicate nature you know in this little mm -hmm. zone even if you're not doing a naturalistic thing how do you still get these principles of like things like gradients things like right. uh, you know dietary nutrition like all that stuff and so I want to change up the diet more, man. I've I've offered quail eggs to some of my stuff, and like yeah. female cyanide goes crazy for it. The male cyanide could care less, but he's kind of a weirdo with food, anyways. Yeah. Some of the some of the birds ate them, um, cool. and that everything else just didn't seem to really care. But someone else yeah. had a good idea of cracking one of those eggs and getting some of that egg on the eggs, and so they can yeah. smell it and they actually know what it is. But yeah, I was like, just thinking that too. I want to do frog legs. I want to do like chicken hearts and stuff, but I can't find them here. You know, yeah, Travis yeah. Wyman is like, I'll send you chicken hearts. I go and get them all the time. But it's like, I'm not going to go through all the trouble of shipping chicken hearts, <laughs> yeah, totally. stuff like that. I'm not going to spend $50 to get, yeah. you know, a $5 pack of hearts shipped to me. No, I yeah. think I think there's a um, exotic food mart over in Bluffton, Smitty. Um, off, well, we off have that Asian. We have an Asian grocery store across from Lowe's, but they're like never open. Yeah, I know you're talking about. I know you're talking about that. But if you in Bluffton off Malfurst Road, right there by the Firehouse Subs, they've got some type of food market, and I feel like it might be like exotic out. stuff. I'm looking into it. Um, but yeah, there's really not a lot of places like that around here where you can get mm -hmm. that weird, you know, frog legs and yeah. you know, Pig Piggly Wiggly used to actually carry some of those weird yeah. stuff. And I like used you to, get like I chicken feet and, and livers and, you know, weird stuff like that. But, you know, this is the last place on earth that has a Piggly Wiggly, by the way. Yeah, probably a pond here and it's full of full of bullfrogs, which are invasive here and just like eat all the native frogs. So I've been yeah. like. Oh, I want geez. to catch those bullfrogs, but then I'm like, okay, what what kind of protocol would I have to go through before I could then feed them to my right. snakes? I don't want to like introduce stuff to my snakes, you know, that I've already done all this work to the de deworm and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I wonder what kind of protocol. If like, I, it's like, okay, freezing maybe that would work for some things, but does that does that work for everything? I don't know. I'm not super confident about that. Right. That's why I'm so weird about just taking anything from outside and feeding. Yeah. You know, yeah. I would much rather buy like granted, like, yeah, like processed stuff. You'd hope it's as little as processed as possible, right. but at least it's probably not going to have all the, you know, 
bacterial stuff and and parasites and things from just catching something for in the in your well, outside even, pond. Even then, yeah. it's like I'm kind of like I don't know because like even like it's like factory farms and stuff like that, like gnarly stuff. Yeah, like yeah. So it's like yeah, you know, it's actually worse, you know, like yeah. But, but I've noticed that like with the spilotes, they don't even they don't have any interest in at least in my experience, no interest in reptiles or amphibians when I've offered them. Um, like I've tried the reptilinks with them, like the one ones and the frog ones that they, they don't care at all. Yeah. I've tried frog legs. They don't care at all. So they seem like, and they also live with three lizards that they have not eaten. So yeah. So, yeah. That's yeah. Good. For sure. <laughs> yeah. I would think more like some of your wet, like me, I'm getting into some Nerodia. So I think, you know, yeah. the froth stuff like frog legs would be, would be a good, that'd be um, perfect for them makes up for them because you also have to think of you know you have to think of your species i'm sure stuff around here like rat snakes i'm sure they'll eat the occasional you know bullfrog or leopard frog or something because we have those in abundance around here you know yeah, yeah. so i want to try the bullfrog tadpoles for the uh for the xenodon yeah oh i bet yeah. you i'd go for those i feel like those I, I did um so when i got my first rhino rat that i lost and never got back i had it for a week and it was glorious. Um, still hurts. It wasn't. Still it hurts. wasn't. Yeah, still a sore subject. It it wasn't fully switched over to mice yet. Um, but I had a bunch of Atatus tadpoles, and I took, I think, like two of those and put it in the water bowl. Loved them. Whoa, cool. So yeah. I think dart frogs, and I know it's going to be crude, but species like you know the the Anthony I and the like the Santa Isabels and the Atatus and Luke's and stuff that produces just an absolute ton yeah. of offspring. Yeah. It's a really good and clean feeder option. You know, I tried yeah. some froglets of the Vitatus with some baby cyania. I didn't get any luck. Um, but I mean, it's such an easy yeah. thing to produce just mass numbers of and use. If you have something that's, you know, specific to, to frogs and stuff, I think it's a hundred percent worth trying. Yeah, totally. I've, I've thought about actually getting, putting dart frogs in with the, uh, the monkey lizards because mm -hmm. the monkey lizards are fully arboreal they don't and i don't think they would have any interest in terrestrial i don't think they would try and eat the frogs at all and i think if the frogs see that's like probably do really well in the setups with them yeah and there's also a reason like dart frogs are colored the way they are mm -hmm. is kind of like a hey don't eat me yeah, you know exactly. and so that could just be that more natural instinct of yeah i'm not gonna touch that you know and that could that'd be a cool idea, man. Yeah, I might I might give that a go at some point. Cause then that's something else to help manage your, your cleanup crew. Exactly. You know, like or like with your your skinks in the um in the big enclosure, you could do something like dart frogs to manage the, the isopods and stuff. Sure. We had a uh an article on his name's uh Roman, I don't remember how I don't know how to pronounce his oh, last yeah. name. Uh, yeah. He did an article on Spilotes and his setup, and he had some some Tinctorius in with his. And he's yeah. like, there's pictures of the Tinctorius like sitting on the Spilotes. Like the Spilotes yeah, yeah. are so small. The Spilotes <laughs> are like, I'm not even going to bother. <laughs> yeah. You're a crumb. That's yeah, crazy. I saw that. I've, I've thought about putting him in with, with the Spilotes too. Because, I mean, it's like at some point I'm like, okay, well, why am I going to do that? You know, <laughs> like. Yeah, yeah, because it's cool, cool. Damn it, that's why. <laughs> Multi-species habitats, you know, as much as that gets yeah. on, I think that like there's ways to do it right too. Mm -hmm. you know? 
So. And see, I think the way that you do it is the right way to do it, you know, because it's like if you try and cram everything in a three by two enclosure, no. If you yeah. try to put a snake and with dart frogs and, and skinks and blah, blah, like, no, that's not going to go well at all. Yeah. But something in an eight by three by six, you know, that's a whole other ball game. You know, it's not like you're going to have 30 dart frogs, but, you know, if you had a small group of dart frogs mixed in with the skinks and they all kind of cohabitate, you know, and they're all from the same area, mm -hmm. then there's no reason why they couldn't. You know, it's literally a mini ecosystem. Totally. So. Yeah, that's, that's the cool thing about it. And it's like, it's also cool, too, to like. One thing I like with the Splody setup is that each thing kind of occupies a different niche in the in the setup. So like the like the Uranoscodon lizard, she stays in like the lower half of the enclosure all the time. Like they have their little zone. That. Yeah, and those lizards are they're totally mm -hmm. weird lizards. They like don't really bask like the like in the wild. Like they people have observed them like moving away from the sun if it like comes down and you know and they like live in the understory. Yeah, and um, and so she like actually right. likes it down in kind of the darker part of the lower half of the enclosure, and she'll occasionally come out and bask higher, but almost never. And then the geckos, they're up in the top, but they're nocturnal, so they're coming out like from their little cork tubes, you know, and and hunting at night when the snakes are in their tubes asleep. So it's just cool the way that it all has its own little spot in the setup, and they don't really overlap. I said, man, it's. A, it's it's a it's a it's an ecosystem you know like that that's so that's so fascinating to me man that, that's yeah. so cool to watch everything you know kind of come out as it should and everything everything has its place in the habitat and and it's time of time of day you know and that's the way to do it man and you're doing it you know you got you got a level that stays on the ground you got a level that stays kind of mid and then the stuff that yeah. stays up top you know yeah. like nothing's over nothing's overcrowded you know it's not too much in, in one area just need yeah, to get some awesome. eyelash vipers in there. Oh, man. <laughs> if only I could. I, it's honestly like it's kind of a good thing that I live in California, just in terms of because <laughs> I would be, I would probably get so into trying to get into arboreal vipers and stuff like that, just because they're so beautiful and yeah. And I like like looking at stuff. I don't need to hold it, you know. So it's that works. But I get to work with snakes a lot here, so that's great. But. Not, not in yeah. the house. That scratches your itch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, are there any for projects sure. that you want to get into, like any species that you're looking to to maybe pursue in the near, not too distant future? There's, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely some stuff. There's, um, in the lizard realm, I really love to work with, um, with Xenosaurus, the little Mexican knobscale lizards, um just weird crevice dwelling little lizards. I like those a lot. I also would love to work with a Bronia at some point in the future. I feel like those would be really interesting to try and yeah. try and help out. Oh, those Xenosaurus like are cool. Yeah, they're really cool. But um, I also really love like what the Bronia Alliance is doing. I'd love to get involved mm -hmm. in that with those guys at some point too. Just, just help to support what they're doing. I think that that's great. And um so that's another taxa that's up there for me in terms of snakes um i'd love to work with the the tomalipin mexican um spilotes at some point the northern locality and my friend john actually um 
had had some sex success breeding those in the past and hopefully will again. And then also Jason hood has some of those now that he's working on breeding as well. So I love those, but, um, probably not going to happen anytime soon just because of space limitations. Um, also Chironius. I really love Chironius. Um, the, the South American, like whip snakes, Mm-hmm. particularly the the Chironius scurrilis they're really they're, is that like they, the bronze backs they're like they're like no, sim- they look similar to bronze backs but they're like they call them machete snakes sometimes oh yeah yeah, yeah. um but there's one that's the the Chironius scurrilus it's the rusty whip snake or the rusty machete snake and they are like brick red big beautiful snakes ashley design is working with those and um i'd love to work with those at some point and then there's one little uh weird uh species of xenodon that i really love called a xenodon warneri yeah i meant to talk about those earlier like how those are even in the same genus as the the tricolor hogs is so bizarre it's super bizarre i mean there's (laughs) probably like some differentiation that's going to happen there at some point right but but i love those and um those i know like they've had a really spotty track record so far in captivity so Mm -hmm. um but I feel like if I had a shot at you're trying to give those a try at some point, I'd definitely have to try it just because they're so cool. So badass, yeah. They just look like little palm vipers, you know? But they're... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the mimicry is just unbelievable how how much they look like the Bothriopsis. Yeah, they're beautiful. But, um, yeah, so all those things are up there. Um, and I'm sure there's stuff I'm, like, not thinking of in this moment. But, I mean, I see stuff all the time around. There's like, always a list. But, yeah, there's always a list. But... I think that for me, a big Everybody's part of what this. I like is I just I like to keep stuff that's really different from each other. Like I, because I I think because I really enjoy different behaviors and different kinds of ecologies, and like I like replicating different habitats. It's fun mm-hmm. for me to work with stuff that's really weird and unusual and not like the other things. I keep like like the tricolors. They're on like the opposite end of the snake spectrum from the Spilotes in a lot of oh, ways. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got these big, powerful, arboreal, fast snakes, and then you got these little chubby, googly eye things. That <laughs> and things that everybody both. thinks like, is a king snake. <laughs> and like, these are awesome. Like I love both of these things. So yeah, that's kind of what gets me going. But. Um, yeah, like like you said, there's always a list. <laughs> well, apparently Jason Hood is upset with me because Billy told me that at I don't even remember saying this, but at one point apparently I said locality spilotes were not a thing. Oh. Oh. Somehow <laughs> Jason heard that. Fighting words. Now, I don't know Jason as well as Billy knows Jason, but Billy was telling me the other day he's like, "Yeah, you said, you know, locality spilotes aren't real." And I was like, "I have no recollection of saying that at oh, any man. point in time." I probably did. I told him I was probably joking, but Billy said no. So I don't, until someone can tell me where that was said, (laughs) I I have a hard time believing it. You're just a freaking douche, man. I mean, Jason's scary because Jason's like, I'm 6'4, and he's he's a big man. He makes me look like a dwarf, man. Yeah. I didn't know that about him, you know, until like I, I started seeing just like in his pictures, these like, yeah. snakes that I know were big look really small. <laughs> you can <laughs> spot them at a show from a mile away, <laughs> man. This someone's yeah. not adding up here. He's like, look at this 10 foot long Spilotes. And I'm like, dude, that looks like it's like five feet. And I'm like, oh, it's just a, he's a giant. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. I want to mess with him. He makes, he makes Jake look like a midget. Man. <laughs> Screw yeah, you. Know, yeah. That's not hard to do, though. You no. Know, locality sulfurious isn't really much of a thing. So you, you can kind of get in out there. I think but I was locality, talking. If I was talking, it was probably yeah. Pilatus. Yeah. Pilatus is. Yeah. Locality is important with those guys. I think that Pilatus, honestly, is a complex of a whole bunch of different species. It's a total. It wouldn't mess. surprise me. Yeah, because the stuff that's down in Guyana, Suriname is completely different what's, from what's coming out of like Mexico and Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, with that much distance between them, there almost has to be. Yeah, like, there's the no with, way. I think it's honestly the same with the sulfurious. Like they range from like, you know, eastern Colombia, Venezuela, all the way to like southeastern Brazil. Like that's a massive, mm-hmm. you know, area. Like there's it's a big old gap, two or three. And you don't you don't get a range that large over a short span of time either, you know. Yeah. So there's got to be something there, but I guess that's going to depend on if you're a lumper or a splitter. So. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's part of it for sure. Lump it, lump it all. How did? Oh, I'm trying to think. I was talking to Rob Stone and Matt Most about the species, the new subspecies or species of rhino rat. Oh yeah, how did, the, I'm trying to figure out how did how did Rob describe it because it was spot on. Yeah. I need to find it. I've been seeing I've seen, been seeing that paper getting posted a lot. It like lacks that kind of like dark eye stripe, right? It's like one of yeah. Those- I mean, even Kevin Messenger, I was talking to him about it. You know, yeah. he spent more time in China looking at these things right. than him. Um, and even, even he was kind of like, I don't know that I buy it. Cause he's seen animals yeah. with extra scales and stuff. It's just like people yeah. having oh, bigger fingernails rather than smaller ones. Like it's, yeah, there's always variation like that. Yeah. What did they say? Yeah. Yeah. Rob said taxonomy is the liberal arts of science. <laughs> <laughs> Not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man, it's, 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 it is weird. Cause it's like, honestly, it's like, you kind of get to this point where it's like, where do you draw the line? You know, it gets kind of arbitrary at some point with, especially if you're going by what, what's your definition of a species and like all that gets just like, it gets all messy. Yeah. we talk about that on snakes and stogies all the time. It's like, you're talking about science, the place that is all about standards and thresholds and bars. Exactly. It's like, this is the one it's- thing that's like, Completely open to interpretation. Yeah, it's like, totally. yeah, it's like science yeah. is supposed to be that thing that's like you don't question it's just science, you know. It's just it's it's science, you know, you know no questions asked, you know. But now it's like uh, I don't think so. You yeah, know, but the more but... you the more you know about science, the more you realize that like that doesn't actually make sense. <laughs> that doesn't make any <laughs> sense. It's like actually yeah. all these are all kind of like you go in with philosophy. one question and come out with five more. Yeah, and none of yeah. them will get answered. <laughs> yep. But. So it goes. Well, we're at the two-hour mark. Uh, wow. Where can people get a hold of you if they um, want to see all the things we have been talking about? Yeah, yeah. You can find me um, on Instagram at Wellspring Herp. Um, I've also got a Wellspring Herpetoculture dot uh, com for the website, and there's a Facebook page for that, and. Um, yeah, I'm Roy Arthur Blodgett on Facebook and super stoked to chat about any of this stuff with folks. It's always good good talking about herbs and 
I'm still kind of like, you know, finding my way back into the community after being away for a while. It's pretty amazing to see just like how it's exploded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we, good I'm sure or bad we... way is also going to be subjective. Yeah. 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 And, you know, there's, yeah. there's good in both. It's like, I'm really stuck <laughs> about all the content, you know, things like this. Like yeah. Doing, and like, there's a there's lot. Unli- there's unlimited podcasts out there now, man. Yeah, it's about there's... anything you can imagine. Yeah, totally. So, I'm speaking of Matt Most and Dr. Loafman, uh, put out their first episode of the Colubrid and Colubroid podcast, which I'm very excited about. I got about halfway through it before I got home, so I'm gonna listen to the rest tomorrow. I need to check that out. Two two awesome guys. Yep, I listened to it today. Yeah, but yeah, so so much cool stuff. You know, it's just unbelievable that the diversity well not necessarily diversity but the stuff that he's got that's so choice you know and like oh yeah no one's doing stuff with yeah and also i think his presentation of everything too is so mm-hmm. good you know it's just super clean and professional definitely definitely admirable what he's been doing yeah i feel like guys like that you know it's like it's we need more folks like that who are just like representing crypto culture in a in a little bit of a cleaner more polished way it helps us mm-hmm long term you know definitely appreciate it absolutely all right man well we enjoyed right. it yeah we'll absolutely. Definitely have, to, have to have you on again at some point and yeah get updates and all that good stuff yeah man you'll definitely be hearing from me i'm gonna pick your brain about some uh, some bioactive stuff in the future sounds good man yeah you'll, anytime. you'll hear from me good deal man well we really appreciate sniffles. you coming on and <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I got that. Got that. Got the um the vids, man. Oh man. Well, yeah, yeah I got the covioid. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Appreciate what you guys are yeah, doing on it. And um, yeah, let's stay in touch. Absolutely, yeah, man. Absolutely appreciate it. All right, have a good night. Have a good one, man. Bye. Episode one thirty in the books. One thirty. Bow 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 bow. bow. I'm, we're going to get messages cool. about you sniffling throughout the show. I do. I try. You know. I muted when You're I had sick. you. I tried to mute. You have, you have a legitimate excuse. Yeah. People, People can, can get over it. Complain all I want. Y'all, y- y'all lucky I didn't, I didn't muted it when I was hacking up a storm. I saw you here. hacking up a lung. It made me giggle a little bit. Yeah. Are you, are you happy you, I muted? You know, I tried to be yeah, respectful to everybody. I very good. Yeah, see, I think you look like a phone and... sex operator with that headset, though. <laughs> or that you're like the the customer service representative for like the jackass. I'm trying to company. reach you about your car's extended warranty. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad Saturday. Saturday is my 10 day mark from. From the doctor, so Saturday back to it. I'm gonna help you clean. My I told Katie. Sunday. I told Katie I'd I'd go get the my first shot tomorrow because I have yet to be vaccinated, and she's con- she's concerned about Daytona and me coming back with something, and so I'm gonna go get my yeah. first shot in the morning, I guess, and then I'll get the second one sometime when I come get back. Yeah, man. Be all right. Apparently, there's like three to six weeks between shots. Is like six weeks is the max you can go before you have to get the first one again, I guess, or something. I don't yeah. Know, 
Yeah, I don't know. I ain't got the shot, but now I've had the vids, so it's just about as good. <laughs> well, I had it too, and I'm hoping that because I had it, that when I get that second shot, it won't kick my ass right. as much as everyone keeps saying it It kicks there. Right. So. But see, like, I also know there's different strains of COVID floating around. I think the one I've got is, like, the other strain, and I don't think they have a vaccine for it. So it's like you might get the one vaccine, but you could still get what I got, you know, because I actually know somebody that does. You know, they have the vaccine, but they still got the system can't handle it. Man, shut up. (laughs) I'm not that small. You're like Glenn and Talladega Nights. Man, I'm not that small. Get out of here. His last words were. That's all he wanted was for you to win. <laughs> anyway, uh, this show has been brought to you by Steve Snake Chewery and his Venom Hot Sauce. Check yep. him out. Check him out. Uh, we will work. see y'all Monday night for Snakes and Stogies 86. Yep. And next week, THP 131. Yes, sir. We will see y'all then. Everyone have a wonderful evening, morning or Stay day, safe. whatever you might be listening to us. That's right. It's five o'clock somewhere. Stay hydrated. Though. Make sure you drink plenty of water. Yeah, definitely do that. You'll get kidney stones like me and you don't want to drink water. Oh, yeah. I forgot you're a 90 year old man. Dude, shut up. My God. You got, I'm, you got I'm some small. Really... I'm 90. I haven't been able to haze you for like a year, man. <laughs> it feels like unhazable because he just up. takes it. He just accepts it. Takes the yeah. fun out of it. He's just like, yeah, and he'll go with he'll go with yeah. <laughs> you got some really yeah. shitty kidneys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. I don't I'm know just, if anyone's told Scott, you lately, got... but your kidneys suck. <laughs> Yeah, I've got like three, just like three on one side, and I think two on the other that are just like floating around. I think you have two, but they operate as one. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I mean like kidney stones. Like I have kidney stones just like oh, hanging out Oh, did you name kidneys. them? You got like a whole family of them. Yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> just like a whole clan, man. I got the parents on one side and the babies on the other. Yeah, it's just, they, they just hang out. My doctor, so like when I got, when I had my last one, my doctor told me that I had more. I was like, you, so are you like, aware that you have a traveling circus in your, in yeah, your body? Yeah. So I'm like, well, what do I do? And he's like, nothing. I'm like, what do you mean nothing? Just he's let like, them yeah, live there. They'll leave there. eventually. Yeah. They, I was like, well, I mean, will I pass them? He's like, you might. You might. They might. You might pass them. You might not. They might just stay there. Yeah. You know? It's like a. I was like, like well, a, hell. <laughs> a group of homeless people that you just can't kick out. Like they have to leave <laughs> yeah, on their right. own in order for you to actually yeah. officially tell them they can't come back. It's also one of the most painful move out experiences you can imagine. So it's well, which uh, it's one's worse, fun. the Atrox or the kidney stones? Dude, the surprisingly comparable, like dead ass, like <laughs> comparable. You know, I would definitely take a kidney stone over over the Atrox bite, but boy, I tell you, man, it's bad. Like it hurts. It's I tell you, it, it's a close one. The my the morning I woke up with my first one. It felt like somebody had kicked me in the jewels about as hard as they freaking could. 
and stuck a knife in my side. It, it felt like I was being stabbed, man. It was so bad. Oh my gosh. Like they put me in a wheelchair when I walked into the hospital. They stuck, me, <laughs> they stuck my ass in a wheelchair and wheeled me back and pumped me full of morphine. Well, Ooh, next time buddy. you come over to my parents for dinner or something, you can talk to my grandpa all about it and you guys can bond. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no. Anybody I talk to about kidney stones, at least like you can, you can swap. My except my sister. And stories. Yeah, my sister's only a couple years. She's only two years older than me, and she's had several kidney stones. Um, I've had two. My dad's had a bunch. My mom's had a bunch. My cousin, who's in his thirties, has had a couple. So it just it just kind of runs in my family. It's an you know? Epidemic. Yeah. The Bratz curse. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't something weird like yeah. a ghost or a demon. They just said you get you get. But it's also we also <laughs> we get that, and then we also have the uh, the toe fungus curse. Oh God, I'm not even gonna yeah, get into that. Yeah, we have a there's a toe fungus that runs Jesus. in my my dad's side. I'm really hoping I'm really hoping I skipped that one. My dad says it'll come when I turn about thirty. So uh, we'll we'll see. But apparently, my grandfather well, had it. My dad's got it. You know, it's a whole thing. So. Oh well, episode one thirty, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> finishing off strong. If you are still here, I apologize. If you left, as soon as Roy left. I completely understand. <laughs> if you stay, I wish will. I could have left too. Wow. Once we wow. cross into the, the toe fungi, that's when I, I draw the line. Well, that was at the very end. So, you know, we'll just we'll cut it off here. All right. Good night, everybody. We love you. See you later.